you get anything good for the Christmas? Uh, the art of Star Wars: The Force Awakens, uh, which Serenity recommended and is really good. What was it? What's that? Is that a, a that's a book table? that shows all the design process? Yeah, that shows the design process they went through, which I always find fascinating. It seems. How do they make the book? How is the book already out? Uh, well, they showed stuff that they've been working on for years and years, like early concepts for the movies and designs they did, and things that changed an awful lot. Uh, and stuff that Jay, that Abrams would come back and forth while he was working on Star Trek to, to kibitz about. Kibitz? I would say kibitz. Am I wrong? <laughs> Am I wrong? I'm wrong. I don't know. I probably got a little bit of Yiddish in mine. <laughs> uh, so, like, what changed? I don't want to go off uh, I've only just started it because I've gotten so not used to looking at physical media anymore that it's a slow reading process for me. But uh, a lot of the early designs were, were just very different and you know, just from the way they look and some of the character ideas that they had. I, I always get the feeling that Abrams writes by the seat of his pants, which is not my favorite characteristic of his. Yeah. I mean, we, I definitely, <laughs> I keep saying I don't want to go all Star Wars on this. Uh, I do think, I, I, I mean, that's his reputation. I mean, I don't know him personally, but I mean, it's certainly his reputation. And it's like, as one of my friends put it, that it's, that he, inevitably heads into every movie like production starts with the story 85 percent written which yeah. it's just that's his style you know and i yeah. don't know that it's ever going to change and you get wonderful set pieces and sometimes the story takes a backseat to them i did like a force the, the force awakens though i don't want to leave people without the i mean I'm, and i've I seen it four times I've, i love the damn thing would you have gone seen it four times anyway? I mean, you really like it that much? I've seen it twice. I can't watch the prequels again. I, I have an inability to watch. I, I can watch movies a lot, and I can't watch the prequels or, or Man of Steel. Movies like that, I just can't watch again. So this, to me, it has to be a good good Star Wars for me to watch it repeatedly. Man of Steel, I, again, I, I don't understand how that movie... I don't understand how that movie got made. I, they don't have a Kevin Fahey who, who just oversees DC's properties, and no one no one gives a shit. Right, it's like you somehow run that up the chain at Warner Brothers, which is like where it ultimately falls, right? Act three, he's going to heat vision a bunch of Kryptonian babies. Okay, go for it. I mean, it's it's not a terrible movie, but it's not Superman. You know what I mean? Yes. And the whole idea of shooting it with that incredibly weird color palette is so bizarre to me. I don't understand. And now they have Superman versus Batman, which might be a good movie, but it's as dark and dreary as the Suicide Squad. So I, I don't know how you have Joker in a world where Superman might as well be the Joker. It's just it's a very odd juxtaposition. Yeah, I mean, and there were definitely some good moments in the movie, but it's uh, I don't know. Anyway, Force Awakens, I liked it a lot. I, you know, Me I have too. some complaints. I don't love it. Um, but and again, I don't think that this is this is no spoiler. Yeah, again, I, I you know you leave your ears open if you haven't seen it yet, but. You should, you should definitely go see it before you listen to the next episode of, of the talk show. Um, I feel like with this one, I feel like like with, for example, like with Spectre, I'll be very, very cognizant of spoilers because I don't know that everybody goes to see it right away. I feel like with Star Wars, you're sort of under an obligation where if you haven't seen it by, say, the end of the calendar year, yeah. then it's on you if you're talking about spoilers. I will just say... And I should say that this was a Star Wars movie to me, and the other ones weren't. So this, to me, is like the first real Star Wars movie we've had in almost 40 years. Yeah, definitely. Like, I, it felt it like it. Well, I don't know. I don't, I, I'm don't. i not a prequel hater. Um, 
but I did. I, the only one I rewatched coming up to this was because I watched them all a lot with my son when he was younger. Um, so I'm I've seen the prequels a ton of times just because he liked all of the Star Wars movies. Um, and I didn't hate any of them, even the Phantom Men- Menace. I didn't hate. I mean, obviously, I had a lot of com- complaints with it, but <laughs> I, I didn't hate it. And there were redeemable moments in all of them, uh, or enjoyable moments in all of them. Um, but the one that I definitely thought I liked the best was uh, Revenge of the Sith, and so yeah. I rewatched that one before watching the despecialized editions of the original trilogy before seeing this. And even that one was even it, it, it gets worse as time goes on. Like my I hadn't pet seen theory it. is that uh, the prequels and the special edition are George Lucas's punishment to us for liking Star Wars more than him. I I I'm I'm so baffled that those movies came that's one of the things and i i know i've said this before but it's like i feel like the the prequels as they are without changing one thing about them make sense in a universe where george lucas didn't control star wars or had sold control of star wars in the early 90s guys at dc comics and yeah, and something like that happened. Like DC, you know, Warner Brothers and DC Comics, or you know, some idiots at Fox uh, did this, and and it's like, oh, what a crying shame! You know what yeah. they've done. It's baffling that he had complete authorial control over the whole thing, and that the guy who came up with, you know, and and deservedly so, gets all the credit in the world for the original trilogy. Uh, that he, that it was him who did this and you know and that there's no indication that he was ever you know suffered any kind of severe head injury or <laughs> uh, well, it's he like wanted I, to do his experimental films and and I think he kind of thinks we didn't let him that because of Star Wars he wasn't allowed to make the experimental films he really wanted to make that's the thing I don't know if people know this but it's like he that's really who George Lucas was and if you look at like yeah. THX 1138 or even like the student version of it before it they were really really i mean they're true art films in the 60s and 70s sense um but but that's not i I don't know i i i feel like he really likes the prequels i really do when you listen to him talk i don't think that he was spiteful I, i feel like that's what he somehow that's what he decided he wanted to make but anyway, it doesn't hold up well. And I also would say, most incredibly to me, is that the effects really don't hold up, in in especially in the. Uh, well, I didn't watch the other two recently, but when I rewatched um, the Blu-ray version of Revenge of the Sith, I, I was really kind of startled because it had been several years since I'd seen it, yeah. and it, I was really startled at how poorly I thought the effects held up overall. But then when you watch, because I did the same thing as you, I watched the despecialized editions right before going to see The Force Awakens, and those effects hold up great. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely, even the ones where you know, like, you can kind of see that it's not real. Maybe the the stop motion on, like, a walker or something isn't quite, uh, isn't quite right. But it, yeah. it the way that it fails, it doesn't get worse as time goes on. Like Absolutely. It, it, it fails in a way that it failed right when they came out. You know, or, or you know, gets to like the ninety-eight, ninety-nine percent marker, and there's a certain charm to it. No, absolutely. Um, I think the biggest thing that really strikes me about the the prequel trilogy, effects-wise, is um, is the the 
the uncanny valley of the almost the fact that almost everything was shot against a green screen. And I almost a cartoon. You, you can pause any scene and and just like the most mundane things like you know uh, they've uh, a meeting in Palpatine's office. <laughs> it's like they're just having a meeting in an office. And I mean, you know, we could go on and on and on about this and talk about how the fact that uh, how so many of the scenes were meetings in Palpatine's office yes. is a problem of the whole thing. Two shots just sitting on sofas. But it just it it and I you can freeze frame you know pause the thing and I I can't look at it and and articulate logically what it is that looks phony to me about it I can't I I don't know what it is it's but it's there's something there is something to the whole thing where it just looks like you know yeah like an inverse version of Roger Rabbit you've got all these real people in a cartoon world. Yeah, it harkens. It reminds me of something you and Merlin did a talk a, a long time ago, South by Southwest, that I always loved, and it, it and it reminds me of what went wrong with George Lucas is that he 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 lost his inner editor and he lost his external editor too. Like he just there was no one to tell him yes and no, no one that that had the authority to do that at least. He was just surrounded by enablers, and you can never do great work when people around you are just saying yeah, that's great all the time. Yeah, I don't, did we mention Lucas in particular at that talk? No, it was just about the, it was just about yeah. the craft of writing. Yeah, but it's definitely true. I'll put a link in the show notes to that. It's probably the high water mark of my public speaking career. <laughs> it was an awesome talk. <laughs> it was I think I've said this before too. Like Merlin and I had this talk planned and we we had met the day before in his hotel room down in Austin and we had a whole talk planned and then we were going on in the afternoon the next day and in the morning we met again to go over it. And we decided that it was total total rubbish. And it was a terrible idea. <laughs> and so we ripped it up and we decided to do a different talk. And at this point, uh, we were like 90 minutes away from going on stage. And <laughs> well, not like when we decided to do that, but like when we had completed like a draft of it. And we we're like, well, let's run through it once. And we ran through it once and it took like 45 minutes, 50 minutes. And we we're like, oh my God, that was awful. That was even worse. And we we're like, what do we do? Do we go back to the one we threw away? Or do we try to make do with this? And we were like, oh, shit, we don't even know. We don't have a chance. You know, we only had 30 minutes before we went on stage. And we we're like, this is going to be terrible. And then we were like, well, the hell with it. It's just a panel at South by Southwest. And so we went with the plan, you know, the new one. And the second time we did it in front of the audience, as soon as we finished, we looked at each other. And we we're like, wow, that was great. And yeah. uh, ever since, uh, I think more, more than any other public speaking thing I've ever done in my life, people come up to me still now and say that was that was pretty good. Yeah, it was it was an outstanding talk. People should go listen to it if they haven't already. I'm not sure what the advice is, though. I feel like I'm giving people the advice that if you ever do a run through of a talk and it's terrible, <laughs> stop. Speak you're, from the heart, John. That's what you're, you're all set. You're ready to go. Go on stage. <laughs> uh, let me start. Or anyway, the whole reason we're here is we're going to talk year in review. Here we are at the end of of 2015. We did that. You and I did this last year on the show. I thought it was great. Um, I this is going to be we shouldn't have wasted any time on the movie talk because there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, and that's and year in review. Let's and mostly focused on Apple. Apple's year in review. Um, before we get started on that, why don't I take our first break and thank uh, one of the great sponsors all year long? Uh, they've been with us on the show. Uh, our good friends at Harry's. Harry's offers high quality razors and blades and other shaving products for a fraction of the price of the big razor brands. 
Uh, it was started by just two guys, and they just wanted a better product without paying an arm and a leg. Didn't make any sense to them that that uh, regular razor blades you buy in the drugstore, the good ones, cost as much as they did. Uh, so they started to make their own blades. Um, they procured them from an old blade factory that's been operating in Germany for a long time. They raised money uh, once they liked the quality so much. They actually bought it. So Harry's owns their own razor factory over in Germany. They've been It's a factory that's been producing high-quality blades for, I don't know, decades. Um, that's how they offer high quality at, at an amazing price is they own the factory. They sell direct to you. You just go to the website and there's no middleman involved. Uh, and so you get a great product in amazing packaging, truly, truly great packaging. Uh, I, I say it before I'll say it again, packaging that makes you not want to throw it away. Um, and the prices are amazing. Here's their starter set. 15 bucks gets you a razor, moisturizing shave cream or gel, your, your choice, and three razor blades. And when you need more blades, they are always $2 each or less. An 8-pack is just 15 A 16-pack is just 25 etc., etc. You can sign up for like a subscription service or if you know how frequently you shave and how frequently you replace the blades, they, they'll just show up automatically and you don't even have to do any kind of work. So great product, great design, uh, and super, super convenient. You'll never have to worry about buying razor blades again. So here's where you go to find out more. Go to their website. It is Harry's. H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. And remember this promo code, TalkShow, just T-A-L-K-S-H-O-W, and you will save five bucks off on your first purchase. TalkShow. So where do we start? I say we go, what do you say, chronological, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think like the big thing this year is that for a couple of years, since 2012, at least, Apple hadn't had a spring event. So it was almost six months of no news up until WBDC. And this year changed all that again. Yeah, it's like you can't please people because in those <laughs> years when they when they moved the iPad in like 2010, 11, and I think even 12. Yeah. yeah. Um, new iPads came out in the early part of the year, spring late winter, whatever you want to call it. And then when they stopped that, like you said, we more or less started going like until WWDC before we heard from them and people would complain, what the hell are they doing? You know, they've lost it. They don't, they don't do anything anymore. Apple's not innovating. Right. <laughs> and now when they do, it's, uh, you know, they've I lost focus. <laughs> yeah. They've lost focus. That's exactly it. Right. They're done. The two uh, things that were interesting to me at the beginning of the year was, uh, at the very beginning at least, was conjecture over Project Titan, which had just broken at the end of the previous year, and yours and a few other people talking about the price of the gold watch, because we had no idea back then what it was going to be. Yeah, so like a year ago, that's really, you know, we knew that the watch was coming. We knew they were going to have a gold one. Uh, nobody knew what it was going to cost. Um, and Titan, I don't, well, I don't, it's anything different today than a year ago regarding that's the car for those of you who don't keep Apple yes. code names, uh, you know, at the top of your head. I don't know that any, you know, it's eventually it's going to not be a, you know, secret rumor project, but I don't know that anything happened this year compared to last that makes it seem Just any more internal stuff. Yeah. 
The gold watch was fascinating to me because uh, this year, more than any other, it it felt like Apple started segmenting their product line, and that caused an incredible amount of stress and anxiety for the community because we were used to really there being few products. Almost every one of them was for us, and now there were gold watches and one-port MacBooks and, and, and products that might be Apple products but not ones that we would want, and that was very uncomfortable for a lot of people. I think that we... And to me, it was, I don't regret it because I thought it was fascinating to think about. I had a lot of fun writing about trying to guess what the watch pricing was going to be. In hindsight, though, we've spent way more time thinking, we collectively spent way more time thinking and speculating on what the gold Apple Watch editions mean for Apple and this watch as a product before they came out than afterwards. Like, once they came out, it's like the gold one the difference between our universe where the Apple Watch edition exists and the alternate universe where the gold one doesn't even exist, it's there's almost no differences between those those two hypotheticals. They had a nice spike in sales when Apple Store Dubai opened and that's about it. Oh, I have no doubt I have seen them. I saw one uh I forget when. It must have been August when I I was in Vegas for a few days in August and I saw one on somebody's wrist there. Uh, and I know I've heard from readers who've seen them, you know, here and there. Cause, but they're definitely rare enough that it's like when people do see somebody wearing one that they, you know, they think like, hey, I'll email Gruber and tell him I saw somebody wearing one. It's pretty, you know, yeah. for obvious reasons, it's pretty rare. I mean, because they're really, really quite expensive. Yeah, for me, it was more the sign because as Apple gets complaints all the time that they never do anything different, they don't take risks, they don't experiment, they should buy this company, they should try. And these are, are products that do take those kinds of risks, whether they gold Apple Watch you know, in the long lens of history is good or not, at least they were willing to try something different. And I like when Apple does that. I would say this with the watch in hindsight, and I just, you know, as the year petered out or played out, I guess I should say, um, I feel very strongly that the best Apple Watch is the Sport Edition. And I don't even mean it in the sense that you're getting the more bang for your buck. You know, the way that sometimes when people do reviews of, like, a category of product and they say, here's our pick for the best, it's not necessarily that they mean it's the best, it's the best given the price. You know, like the best car might be the Honda Accord, somebody would say. But they're not trying to say that it's literally a better car than, uh, you know, $110,000, you know, top-of-the-line Mercedes S-Class. They're saying that given, you know, I'm saying flat out that I think the Apple Watch Sport Edition is the best version of the watch, period. Like, full stop, don't worry about the fact that it costs less than the other ones. Yeah, I mean, it's got a wide variety of looks. It's got the silver, the black, the rose gold, the gold. Uh, it's super light. It's got the, probably the best Taptic engine of any of the of the watches. A lot to recommend it. It's the Taptic engine that, to me, makes me say that because on mine, my you know the one that I that I personally own is the black stainless steel one. The Taptic engine was never that great uh, to start with. wasn't wasn't broken. I wouldn't call it broken. It just didn't feel great. And it certainly didn't feel like the demo ones that Apple had, which were like the platonic ideal of what this was supposed to feel like. And quite frankly, just didn't feel as good to me as the sport one that I have. Um, I've got a review unit sport watch here. My son has a sport edition. Um, The Taptic engine just doesn't feel as good. And the other factor is that as the years gone on, the Taptic engine in my, in my black stainless one has gotten worse. It's, just somehow it's not weaker but it's like looser 
somehow. It's very hard to describe. I just feel very strongly that the Sport One is is a superior product. Yeah, my black stainless steel is the same. I think we got ours at the same time. Yeah, I got mine. Yeah, the right black away. stainless steel that I have is the same, uh, and I I don't know if that's uh, because it's early on, and there were some rumors that they that they shipped later because there was trouble with one of the Taptic engine suppliers and they had to ditch a bunch of the engines and and that's pushed a lot of the, the delivery dates out. But the the stainless steel watch I got with the Hermes strap later on is has a much better Taptic engine, so hopefully they figured that part out. Yeah, so that's interesting to me. So you you got the my sport, or not my sport, my personal Apple Watch is one that I ordered on the first day you could order, which was, yep. I think, April 10th. And I got it, you know, at some point in mid-may um that's interesting that you so you got the hermes one which is a stainless steel uh apple watch even after all this time i still get i still want to call it apple watch steel just when talking about it just to be (laughs) clear as opposed to apple watch as a generic platform which Mm -hmm. anyway that that's well maybe this year they'll fix it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, but it's interesting to me that you feel like you got a better Taptic engine in that one. Yeah, and it shipped with WatchOS 2 on it, so I'm guessing that it was later in the production. It wasn't just a, an original you know, one that, they, that I had to update when I got it out of the box. Hmm. So that's, to me, is, is one. And, and it, interesting to me, that, that's just... The, 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 other, the only thing I don't like about the Sport one is the... Um, I do wish that... that, that, that that it had the sta- or sapphire crystal instead of the yes. the glass. Totally understand why it doesn't because of the price. Um, but just in terms of giving it a a wholehearted endorsement as if you were going to buy an Apple Watch today, which one would I recommend? The only thing that would keep me from wholeheartedly recommending the sport ones is the fact that it doesn't have the sapphire display. Um, but even my son's, which he has worn very regularly throughout the year it definitely has scratches but they're very very fine and they are definitely not visible unless you're looking for them like holding it up to the light uh and you know he's just an 11 year old kid he's he's pretty careful with his stuff but i mean it's not like he you know it hasn't exposed it to a lot of you know wear and tear we've and- spoken about this before and uh the the the, it feels like the production quality on the Apple Watches are is as good, if not better, than any product Apple's released. Like the diamond-like coating on the back stainless steel one, I thought I've scratched it several times, and it's turned out that it's taken some steel or some concrete off of something else, and the watch itself underneath is fine. Yeah, that's true for mine as well. I will say that with the the DLC coating on mine, and I I sent you pictures a few weeks ago yes. of mine. It it literally looks mint condition. I really feel like. In terms of scratches, I could if just if I cleaned it with just warm water and uh, you know maybe a toothbrush or whatever they say to use, but just to clean it to get some little bits of sand and stuff like that or dust out of there. In terms of scratches, I think I could pass it off as mint, like new in box. Mm-hmm. It is that unbelievable, and that, that's not true for any kind of normal stainless steel watch. Yes, no, it's remarkable. So. Uh, what about the launch of Apple Watch in hindsight? Got a lot of, I would say, controversy. I, I would say that there was controversy about it just in terms of the fact that it, it wasn't in stores. Uh, you had to make appointments to try it on in stores. Uh, even people who ordered right on day one had, you know, some people didn't get their watches till the end of May. There were certain bands that didn't even ship until summer. 
Um, lots of people complained about that, but is that is that just the nature of a brand new product that you know the first time they ever made a watch? Of course, the rollout's going to be like that. Yeah, I think we've seen that previously with some things like the Retina displays and the early iPhones. Uh, it, it created production shortages. And the thing with Apple is that they sprint at those deadlines. It's not like they have the products ready way in advance and they just accumulate them for months. They ship them as fast as possible. And sometimes when you do that, you, you overshoot, like something doesn't work out. And I have the feeling that whether it was some of the leathers for some of the straps that they had to swap out or some of the Taptic engines that didn't have the yield rates that they needed, they just didn't have enough of them on hand. And that coupled with the fact that it was a new product um, it, it ended up being a goofy launch and it felt like everything that they did was sort of an attempt to mitigate uh, the, the problems with getting that product on the market as best that they could. In hindsight, though, like now after Christmas and, you know, obviously everything I saw is that there were no supply problems with any of the watches, you know, for the holidays and just talking, you know, Craig, our friend Craig Hockenberry just posted a thing about it, the downloads of his uh, little free clicker app for the watch that they yep. spiked you know huge huge spike on christmas day you know so at least some anecdotal evidence that uh, you know a significant number of people got apple watches for christmas you know which I, was obviously the plan it's not that's not shocking or surprising news um but in hindsight the fact that the april may june time frame was a rocky launch in terms of having everything available when it was yeah so what yeah, it's and it's it's it's. I don't want to say it's concerning because it's repeated, but we've seen that again with things like the Apple Pencil, which hasn't been available to 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 launch with the iPad Pro. They're getting a few in every now and then, and again, brand new product, and it's incredibly hard to coordinate the manufacturing for all these brand new products all at one time. What's and if Apple had their druthers, they absolutely would want it all to land at the same time because they'd sell far more that way. What's the availability on the Pencil right now? Still drips. It's, not, it's still coming. They get a few. Yeah, they get a few in at a time, and they sell out hmm. quickly. Hmm. Um. Well, we'll come back to that later. But yeah. that's interesting. I didn't know that that was that was hard to buy. Looks like. Ooh, yeah. If you go to if you go to Apple dot com today as yeah. we record, and try to buy it from the website, it is available to ship four to five weeks. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of feel like that's the nature of some of these new things, especially ones that really are sort of, you know, like the watch or the pencil, where it's it's not even just, well, we used to have these, you know, 160-some pixel print screens, and now we've gone to, hundred, you know, four times the pixels, 330 per inch. Um, you know, it, this is everything about it is a new thing, all of it. You know, it's not just the tip or whatever other sensors are in the pencil. It's the whole thing. Yeah, everything has to be almost perfect to get it all to land at the same time. And once in a while, it's not perfect. And we see that with the watch, with the pencil, things mm. like that. So what do you think, uh, with the watch, what do you think we're going to see this coming year? Uh, if we just look at, at past activities being the best indicator of future activities, I think the watch ends up getting uh, almost like what happened with the iPad 2 or the iPhone 3G, where they just get better at making it. And that manifests itself in it being um, lighter. I don't know if it necessarily has to be thinner because it's got all those, it's got that sensor stack on it, but uh, there'll be a new design because that's what Apple does. And my biggest hope, because you know some people are, are nervous that they have to change the casing every year. I've got so many straps now. My biggest nightmare is if the straps aren't compatible. So I'm hoping that whatever they do with the watch, we get a strap compatibility for as long as we got 30 pin dock connect compatibility 
Yeah, I would hope so. But on the other hand, I I, I don't want to bet on it though. I I feel like that was at least their hope originally. Yes. Um, I feel like they're not going to let that constrain them if if it means that they if they feel like they could come out with something really better that they would take that bullet in the early years of the product. Um, we'll see. I would, if, I guess if I had to bet, I'd place a small bet that whatever the Apple Watch 2 looks like, it'll be strap compatible. Yeah, there's some obvious gaps. Like the first uh, iPhone didn't have GPS. The first Apple Watch didn't have the discrete GPS. It doesn't have discrete radio technology in it either. Like you can't just go on LTE or, or Wi-Fi. Very, you can go on Wi-Fi by itself, but it's not full on Wi-Fi. So there's things like that, that once the, the thermal and the, the power constraints go down low enough or they optimize well enough that they'll be able to build in. Yeah, I don't know if we're there yet, though. I feel like it's not going to be... A, I, I feel like we're not set for a radical upgrade. On... Well, they're trying. Uh, I was at a Starbucks and I had my Apple Watch on, and the guy goes, "Oh wait, I have the Samsung Watch, and it's got 3G." And he ran into the back and he ran out with it, and it was the size of a small phone. Yeah, <laughs> on his wrist. And the other one that had 3G didn't. They didn't end up being able to ship it. Um, I forget which one that was, but it was a recent watch that was going to come out. And oh, it was L- watch. LG. I LGs, think. yeah, right. or Bain. Yeah, they they couldn't ship it because these stuff. This stuff is really hard. Yeah, I can't imagine that they're going to have independent 3G yet. Um... I've, I don't know. It's I mean, eventually it's going to happen. I feel like one year out, it, that's a bit much to ask. What I would really like to see is just for now, I, I would like to see an Apple Watch 2 that remains a satellite of your iPhone and just is way, way, way more robust in terms of having a, a, a fast, responsive connection between the phone and the watch. Reliable. Yeah, the S2 computer on a chip is going to be super interesting to see. Yeah, and I feel like that's the area where they are most likely. And again, this is just looking at the last, you know, the eight, seven, eight years of Apple, the post iPhone Apple. The thing that they have most consistently been able to do in terms of year over year improvement, just give them 12 months and see what they come up with, is improve those those uh, you know the cpus and chipsets inside these devices yeah we could talk about this later but uh one of my my biggest story of the year for apple was johnny saruji's hardware platforms team just the work that they've done that almost never gets any credit but from chipsets to storage controllers to things like 3d they've just been knocking it out the park yeah well they don't it's not that they don't get credit and it's unrecognized but for the most part so much gets written about Apple, and it almost all gets written from the external perspective yes. of looking at the final product and you know complaining about those things that you <laughs> that are exposed and on the outside as opposed to sort of looking trying to look at it from the inside out and say, "Good God, this is remarkable what you know you know what the graphics performance is like on this iPad pro." Or if you really, if someone listen- had asked you ten years ago, who's it would you know, if someone had come and told you John Apple's going to be the most exciting chip design company in the world, we would have all thought they were crazy. Well, yeah, I think so too. Definitely, just because it wasn't part of their history, and now it kind yeah. of is. But it's it it also it's more silent because they they're only customers themselves. Yes, you know, and they're not. They're not peddling these chips to other makers to do things with, 
which is a huge advantage because they don't have to worry about profit for profit or loss on a chipset level. They don't have to support other like they don't have to support things like DirectX on their chips, and they don't have to support anyone else's architecture. And they can cater to exactly what they want to do on a software side, like four four K sorry three four K streams, you know, handled at once. All right. Even even you know after a couple of years of these devices, even if you look at the just like the first iPad in 2010. So just go back. Well, at this point, that would be six years ago, right? Because yeah. we got to kind of start thinking about, I was going to say five, just did 2015 minus 2010, but it's... Five and a half, yeah. Yeah, well, five and like 10, 12. Three quarters, yeah. Um, just go back to that first iPad. And I remember, you know, being very impressed by how smooth the the whole thing was and like just scrolling when I first got my hands on it. Um, But clearly it wasn't, you know, it had a lower resolution or pixels per inch density than the iphone did it was only like 133 right because then it went to 266 when they went mm-hmm. retina you could definitely see pixels and it wasn't that fast and then if you had given me the the pixel count of the ipad pro and said when do you think yeah. they'll they'll be able to make one of these devices an ios device with a display with that many pixels and have it you know complete complete 60 frames per second responsiveness I would have thought, well, it's possible, but I would have thought, you know, maybe like 10 years. Yeah. And, you know, here it was, it was only five years. So, that, you know, it was at least double what I would have guessed as uh, as a as a optimistic scenario. There's a funny story about, um, you know, Steve Jobs wanting sushi at Cafe Max. So he just told him, go get me the best sushi chef in the world. And they went and got him a great sushi chef. And at the same time, he said, you know, I want some. I, I don't understand these chipset things. I just want just get me the best chip guy in the world. And they went and got him the best chip guy in the world. And over the time, they just kept accumulating really, really good chip people. And I think most of them still aren't publicly well known that those people are working at Apple. But the team they've assembled there is absolutely industry leading. And I think we're going to only see more and more impressive stuff from them as time goes on. Yeah, and I really do feel like that's what Apple Watch needs the most. You know, we can you can criticize. You know, it's there's a a weird aspect to it in terms of watches being jewelry and watches being you know anything that qualifies as jewelry being something that people use to sort of signify their own personal sense of style. And the fact that if you look at traditional watches, it's a product category where it's almost an uncountable number of options even if you just said i'm going to go to my local shopping mall and i'm going to buy myself a watch just in the stores in that one mall that you go to um the number of watches that you would consider if you looked at all of them is you know you'd never you wouldn't be able to do it in a day staggering staggering and the you know with with serious variety in in the in the the looks that you can go through and then with apple watch the pitch is everybody's going to get a watch that more or less looks the same. And yes, there are, mm-hmm. you know, there's a difference between the uh, steel and leather and the sport bands. But the watch itself is fundamentally this uh, identical uh, capsule shaped rectangle. And, you know, there's a reason for that. I don't think that they they can't, it's not feasible for them, even with the number of, you know, just think about the variety of options they have given this limited design. That's that's a weird thing. And, you know, for people, not to go off on a, a down the rabbit hole of round versus rectangular and, you know, which is the way to go for smartwatches. Um, 
I think they went rectangular for good reason, but just even given that distinction alone, I understand that. And there's a reason that people could criticize that, but I don't think that that's the sort of thing that they need to look at for Apple Watch too. Like, I feel like Agreed. the basic look and layout of it is fine. And that's absolutely not what's holding it back from being more useful to more people. It was good enough for Leia and Jedi. It's good enough for me. <laughs> that was amazing. I, that was you who tweeted that, right? Yeah. I can't believe I didn't see that that screenshot um, more. I, I I hadn't seen that since Apple Watch came out. So if I'll put it in the show notes, I promise. But but uh, Renee had posted a tweet, a screenshot from Return of the Jedi, where Leia's like wrist communicator really does look like an Apple yep. Watch. I mean, not like not like so much that you would suspect that it was photoshopped onto the screenshot, but it looks pretty similar. Yeah, amazing. So anyway, my hope for 2016's Apple Watch 2, which I'm guessing will probably come out around the same time as last year's. I'm, you know, there are rumors already that there's going to be a March event this year yeah. again. I would not be surprised if Apple Watch 2 comes out. My guess is Apple Watch 2 will look very much like Apple Watch 1, case compatible, and that all of the improvements will be uh, pretty much from Johnny Saruji's team, I think. And of course, yeah, of course, obviously, software. You know, oh, uh, Apple Watch three to uh, Apple Watch OS three to watch. Yeah, watch OS. 3. Watch OS three to uh, to take advantage of. I, I agree, and I think that um, the mistake that we often make in technology is people say, "I don't want to buy a new Apple Watch again. I just bought one last year." But Apple's never targeted year over year. I mean, they're happy if you want to upgrade year over year, and there's some subscription things they're doing now that is more geared towards that. But traditionally, the second version is not meant for the people who have the first version, but for people who didn't, for whatever reason, buy the first version. And there's a lot of people who don't have Apple Watches, and those are the ones that they're going to gun for with the second. Right. Version. And the criticism from people who bought Apple Watch 1 is inevitable, and it will be v vociferous. <laughs> But if you think about it from Apple's perspective, and sometimes I think when I when I take the think about it from Apple's perspective angle on an explanation for why they're doing this, people get angry, but they're yes. still not being logical. Like, what else is Apple to do? Are they, you know, the only the only two options they would have had would have been not to release the Watch One last year at all because they, there's a new one. They knew that the two was coming out in 2016. Um, which is true every year. Yeah, which, which it, it if you get locked into that type of thinking, they would they would not release anything. It would turn into Willy Wonka's chocolate yeah. factory that's closed and doesn't release anything, which might be good for the privately held Wonka chocolate company, but is not good <laughs> at all for the publicly held Apple Apple Incorporated. Um, and then what would be the other thing to do to to not release Apple Watch two, which they could do this year, but just to make Apple Watch one users happy? Well. That's suicide in the tech yeah. tech world. You can't just sell an old thing, uh, so you don't annoy the people who had it. I mean, this is the it's you know. I think Steve Jobs said it about as well as anybody could. Uh, not really with a year over year upgrade, but when the uh, back in two thousand seven, when the price dropped of the iPhone two or three months after it first came out, um, it was like, hey, this is this is technology it moves fast you know we're yeah. we're trying to you know make this as fast as possible and sell it at the best price we can as fast as we can and we you know we can't worry about breaking eggs along the way 
No, and, and for the thing, you know, people do get angry, but for me, the explaining at least the best as we can what Apple is thinking, at least it lets people hate Apple intelligently. Instead of hating them for superficial reactionary reasons, they can listen to the explanation, understand the point of view, and then hate them for good reason. <laughs> uh, it does, it is, you know, I've I heard a lot of people say it, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I bought without I, you know, I bought my stainless steel Apple Watch with my eyes wide open, knowing yes. you know that it's probably only going to be good for a year. Uh, and I'm an idiot; I just throw money away on all sorts of Apple stuff. Uh, I think the people who are sensible about it, and lots and lots of people I heard from said, "I'm I'm willing to wait a year to get my first Apple Watch." Very sensible, very sensible take. It will, and if that's the type of personality you have, you know. You know, you're going to. I think you're going to be very satisfied with that patience, or people who are maybe slightly less patient, or maybe had more money, willing to throw away. People who said, "I'm going to get one, but I'm going to get the sport model because I bet I'm going to want to get a new one the next year." All very pretty. Well, some people never want the Reve board, and some people always want to be on the ground floor of a new technology. And there's different kinds of personalities. Not everyone's the same, and you you can sort of pick the one that you want, and it's up to you to make an informed, rational adult decision. Yeah. Um. All right, one last thing, prediction on the Apple Watch. Do you, do you agree that it'll probably be announced in March? Yeah, I think this year's March event will, will pretty closely mirror last year's. Do you think that it will be more like the Apple or the iPhone 3G or the 3GS? Yeah, that's interesting because the 3G famously, the Apple didn't count it as a full version. It was a one comma product. It wasn't the two comma product. That was the 3GS. So it was basically what the iPhone was meant to be from an internal, um, at least tracking perspective, where I think Apple Watch hardware, to your point, will be similar. I don't know what they're going to designate it, but I, th- I think I'm, I'm agreement with you on that. that it's going to be more of a rounding out the way WatchOS 2 was than another leap forward. So which one do you think it's going to be more like? I think it'll be more like the 3G. And you know, keeping in mind that Apple often has a conservative mm. version of a product and a, a very aspirational version of a product, and they have to figure out which one they can reliably deliver any year, I think they absolutely have both ready. I, but I think, based on the Apple Watch this year, I think we'll we'll get more like the 3G version. Hmm. I wonder. I, I was kind of thinking maybe it would be more like a 3GS. Um, like maybe more like, uh, to compare them, more like... The original iPhone didn't exist. That we started with the 3G and we're going to the 3GS. In other words, it'll Maybe look the iPad a lot. 2 is a better version, a better comparison. Not yeah, it's thinner. I agree with you. I think it's the inverse because the the iPhone 3G got a better radio, but not a a, a better processor. Uh, and I think the the Apple Watch 2 is going to get the better processor, not necessarily the radios. Right, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking better processor and yeah, probably not better radios. Uh, well, we'll see. I don't know. Maybe a mixture yeah. of the two. And maybe you're right that the iPad 2 is maybe the better example. Although the iPad 2 is really largely about making the thing thinner. And yeah, I don't think later. we're going to see I don't think we're going to see that with the watch. I don't think we're going to no. see a thinner version. I don't think we need to. Well, we will eventually, and I'm sure <laughs> we never need to. I mean, there's I but inevitably they're going to get to a point where where Johnny Ives' team is going to start pressing the, the no, no, we're going to make it a lot thinner. 
Well, they typically make things thinner because they want to make them lighter because lighter for them is essential to usability. But things like the Apple TV, um, 3D Touch, there are exceptions to that rule for them. There's things that they yeah. believe are important enough features or capabilities that they're going to just blow through the the envelopes on that. But they have a huge thermal. Like I, I, my understanding is that the S1 runs as hot as it physically can for that enclosure. Yeah, that's. I wouldn't be surprised, especially given how slow some things are. Yeah. That there's just no way. So anyway, we'll see. I'm excited about it. There was um, something else that was really cool about the March event, and that was sort of the coming out of Jeff Williams. Like he introduced Research Kit, and that was the first time we saw who's arguably one of the most powerful people at Apple on the stage. Right. He went from beginning of the year had hadn't he appeared on stage and was sort of a you know it wasn't a secret. I mean, it's there on the the press bios page for Apple executives, but wasn't really known publicly by by the end of the year he'd been promoted to chief operating officer yeah and had been on stage i think he was at wwc he was definitely at the september event and he owned the watch this year it was his it was his project yes that is actually true um and not well known and you know kind of a a I thought about this, and I didn't write about much about it, but I thought about it when they made the announcement a week or two ago about the the executive not really changes it's more or less promotions mm -hmm. and like you wrote uh in your piece at imore sort of making official changes that have been made internally for a while like johnny saruji's stature within the company was svp yeah. level in in terms of you know the respect that he has and and the understanding of how important it is it just wasn't reflected in his official you do title. the job before you get the title at apple right and and uh i was thinking about it with um with Jeff Williams, and clearly part of the the gravity of being named COO of Apple is that in the modern era, which again I always say is post next reunification, yeah. there's only ever been one other COO, and that was Tim Cook, and we see you know what that meant for him, and you know it clearly meant that he was number two and and in line to take over CEO if anything happened to the CEO, and I think. You know, it's hard not to think the same with Jeff Williams. And the other thing, too, that made me think about it is that, to my knowledge, when, when Tim Cook was COO, he never really had the role over a new product the way that Jeff Williams did with the watch in particular. Yeah, it was a different... Like the, uh, the, the iPhone was the clear example of the big new product category, and that Scott Forstall basically owned. I mean, Steve Jobs owned everything, but Scott Forstall was the closest to not being Steve Jobs and owning a product. Uh, and there's there's no sort of Scott Forrestal that's all been unified now, and they do have you know, Kevin uh, Lynch, but he's doing just the software. And, and I think a brand new product it needs somebody to sort of incubate it and, and and take care of it as a specific new product before it can get reintegrated into the existing structure in Apple that ships iPhones and iPads every year. Yeah, and I think that the operational angle on that is, and again, it's I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but. Um, I think, th I mean, the number of iPhones they sold in 2007 was maybe, I don't know, just a few million. It was in the millions, yeah. Uh, of that first one until, yeah. you know, the, the, the one with the metal casing was really, really small in the millions. And I think they got to 10 million by the end of 2008, which would be a full year of selling the original iPhone and then six or seven months of selling the 3G. But it was really when with they the... hit subsidies that it took off. Yeah. And it's really with the 3G where production really ramped up. Yeah. Um, 
and for all of our like uh, we just mentioned it earlier in the show all of the bitching and moaning about the the early production delays on the apple watch in april and may um here we are just you know nine months later and we've gone through a christmas where there were no no supply problems and they've sold way more Apple Watches when we don't know exactly what because they're not how many because they're not breaking them out. But it's clear that they've sold way more Apple Watches in this first year than they did iPhones in its first year. And it's just and they were able to do it internationally, which the original iPhone wasn't. It was available in one country and then maybe three or four countries for most of that year. Yeah, that's also very true. Yeah. And it's again and I'm not saying that I don't bring this up to, to posit that the Apple Watch is on pace to be more popular than the iPhone. I think it's clearly just because Apple as a company and its products it, that it's, it, it is, you know, it's more of a cultural phenomenon and it can make a new product um, known to people in a way that it couldn't before. And they've yeah, brought, they've broadened their base of people who consider themselves Apple customers. And it, it all the iPod it took a while for the iPod to ramp up till after it became available on Windows. It took a while for the iPhone to ramp up. The iPad ramped up incredibly quickly, but then it, it also sloped down fast too. And it feels like you know you're on a highway that has a speed limit, and regardless of how fast you accelerate, there's still that speed limit. So you can have initial bursts, or you could have a slow acceleration. But all the products sort of get there in the end. I also think that with the iPad, which I think sold somewhere between like ten and fifteen million in its first year. Um, don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure that's ballpark about either. right. I remember being on a, 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 a TV show, Clayton Morris's show, with with people guessing at first year sales, and it was like me and Andy and Atco, and yes, I think Jason Snell. Um, I forget who else was on, but my guess, yeah, Jason was on remotely, uh, and my guess was way higher than everybody else's, and I was still a little low um, of what actually turned out. But even then, I feel like making that original iPad wasn't anywhere near as much of a stretch operationally because they had three years under their belt of making iPhones and the technology was fundamentally the same, except this was bigger. And so yes. it, in some ways that makes it easier. Whereas with the watch here, they are taking these iPhone style chips and display technology uh, and et cetera, and making a really, really small thing with incredibly tight tolerance for so many of these things physically that it was harder. Yeah, I feel like the, it was a, I, iPad ran it even ran what was called iPhone OS at the time, where with Watch OS they created that separate interface layer right. for like the clock faces and for carousel and for some other things. Right. Uh, the other big difference, I think, is that the there was also 10 years of phones before the iPhone and 10 years of tablets before the iPad, so they sort of knew what the problems were that they wanted to fix, where with the Apple Watch, they entered the product category very quickly, and there isn't as much evidence as what... They don't have as much information about what that product needs to be. They're sort of part of the experiment for the first time. Yeah. All right, let's take a break. I'll thank another sponsor, and then we'll go... Like, next up is WWDC, right? Yeah. All right. Well, our next sponsor is our good friends at automatic what is it automatic is a connected car adapter i call it i like to call it a dingus it's a dingus and it plugs into your car's diagnostic port um that's the all these cars have the exact same port every car manufactured since 1996 has one of these ports it's this thing that when you take it in take your car into the the dealer or your local uh, auto shop they just plug a thing into the same port and it tells them all this diagnostic information about your car if you have like a warning light come on or or a 
hey, go, you know, you need to go get your oil change. And it says, like, uh, go get service A1 or something like that. Uh, if you have automatic, you plug your you plug it into your car, it tells you exactly what that means. It actually decodes it and tells you, or if there's, like, a problem with the car, not just, like, regular service, uh, but they say, like, you know, error code F2 or something like that. Um, automatic can tell you exactly what that means, and you'll know whether it's, hey, this is actually serious or... B, this is, you know, this is, yeah, something you got to get looked at, but you can, you know, finish finish going where you're going and not worry about it. Uh, really, really useful. It just totally opens up exactly what's going on with your car. And it's kind of remarkable how much modern cars know about what's, you know, going on system-wide throughout the whole car. Um, and it does all sorts of other things, too. It uh, hooks up to your phone and uses GPS, and it can give you a log of your trips and parking location. It can use the GPS while you're driving to sort of rate your uh, fuel economy and your efficiency, score you on that. Um, and they have a new app store for automatic. And you go there, and it lets you hook up all sorts of things. And you do this by using your phone. You just have your phone paired with Bluetooth to the automatic in your car. And you can hook up all sorts of cool things like IFTTT, that's if that, if this, then that. Um and set up all sorts of scenarios where it says if you get within five uh, miles of your home, uh, you could have it hook up to your Nest thermostat and have it, you know, turn on the heat or in the summer, turn on the air conditioning. Um, all sorts of re recipes like that. They have lots and lots of apps. Over 20 apps are in their app store. You can go check it out at automatic.com slash apps and see the sort of things that are available. Bottom line, this is all really, really cool stuff. Uh, it works on any kind of car, any car made after 1996. So it's not like you need a certain brand or something like that, a certain model. Any car, you just plug this thing in, it hooks it up. Even can tell you things like where you parked your car because it has this GPS and it can remember stuff like that. How much is it? Well, here's the thing. It is super, super, it's amazingly cheap. It's just uh, $100, $99.95 normally. But they have a 20% off offer for talk show listeners. That's 20 bucks. You'll save 20 bucks on this thing. Get it for $80 by going to automatic.com slash the talk show. Automatic, just spelled like the dictionary word, dot com slash the talk show. It ships in two business days. You'll get it just two days from now after you listen to this show. Go order it right now. And here's the last thing I'll say. 45-day return policy with free shipping. So if you buy it, you don't feel like this thing's worth 80 bucks. You got 45 days, send it back to them, and no money's out of your wallet. My thanks to Automatic. All right, WWDC. Well, there was one thing right before WWDC that was super interesting, and that was Johnny Ive getting promoted to chief design officer. Oh, that and is his true. New direct reports going right to Tim Cook. Yeah. Who are his new direct reports? It was Alan Dye. Uh, yeah, and Howarth. Uh, I'm forgetting his first Richard? name. Richard? Richard Holt, yes. And that created this whole, ah, uh, is Johnny Ive leaving? Is his role changing? It was, again, um, a lot of noise. I think over the course of the year, no one even really thinks about it anymore. No, I don't think so. Um, and I get the feeling, I, I don't feel like, you know, again, would it be the biggest shock in the world if he leaves in a couple of years? I guess not. I no. mean, you never know, you know, and he's obviously a very private person. You don't really know, you know, can't if you don't know him how could you say um and this could be then be seen in hindsight as a 
you know, a precursor to that. Um, but my guess is no, because from what I do know of him and what, you know, it's obvious is if, if he's obsessive about design, where else, what else is he going to do? Like, it seems to me like what he would want to do if he could do whatever he wanted to all day, every day is run Apple's design team. Well, we saw that in the 60 Minutes special. They showed everything from his little sketchbook where he made the, the wash designs to the CNC machine spitting it out behind him to his glee over the giant glass panels being installed at, at uh, uh, Campus 2. Yeah, yeah, the biggest pieces of curved glass ever made. That yeah. was pretty interesting. What a great job. Yeah, and I feel like what the promotion of Die and, and Haworth really meant was that it frees him up from... Uh, administrative and bureaucratic responsibilities that there are meetings now that instead of he attending you know die and or Howorth can attend yeah. um and just things like for people on the design team like approving vacation schedules or whatever else the kind of administrative stuff that somebody has to be in charge of it's not him anymore and that he yeah, and can... I think it's similar to what we'll talk about with Phil Schiller later where it removes bottlenecks from the process of Apple as Apple scales yeah, I think so. And I think it lets him uh it lets him spend more time on what he's drawn to mm -hmm. as opposed to what he, you know, the the paraphernalia, the the miscellaneous stuff that you have to do um that that's just sort of busy work. I don't know, for lack of a better term. Yeah, there's two universal truths in big business. That is everyone wants more management and more power and then anyone who has it wants to get rid of it. Yeah, and maybe that's, you know, exactly what, what this was about. And I kind of get the feeling that, that both Dai and Haworth are very, very trusted by Ive. Um, yeah. And so it's it's not, there's I don't think there's any kind of Machiavellian aspect to it where they're angling to take over. I feel like, you know, they're at the stage in their careers where they're looking for more uh, management and authority. And Ive, I really do think it's as simple as that he just wants to spend, you know, he's only got, you know, so many hours in the day every day and wants to spend them obsessing over every you know design period whether and it's teams are fantastic like the the uh, id team and the hi teams they they said i think only two people have ever left id over the history johnny ives tenure and yeah. those teams know what they're doing yeah well and it's a very small team i mean yes. if and, and if there is a bottleneck still within the company that might be part of it but i don't know that it's it's you know, I think it's clearly one of those mythical man month type things where throwing yeah. more people at it isn't going to make more better design come out. I liked the, in that 60 minute special, one of the things I really liked seeing was that they brought out the 10 prototype iPhone 6s. Yes. From every size, you know, from uh, four inches up to, I'm not quite sure what that biggest was, probably six. Um, but that they had ten different iPhone six shapes, and I don't know that they, I don't I I you know they didn't turn them on, so you couldn't see whether they were actually like electronic device, you know, like working iPhones, or were they just things that you held in your hand? Um, but they had all ten of them there for for them to display. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, and that it wasn't just about the size, but to to I that was part of the entire product experience of having a device of that size. Yeah, uh, it's. You know, I, I I believed it when I said that. You know, that was the story that they told when they came out with the two, you know, the 4.7 inch and 5.5 inch iPhone 6 sizes. Um, and they said, you know, we made 10 
10 versions from every size from 4.0 up to, I think, 6.0 inches, yeah. and that these were the two that felt right. Um, but I thought it was pretty cool that they still had them there and brought them out. Yeah. Everything else under tarps. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like the story. It reminded me of the story from The New Yorker, which was the profile of, of Johnny Ive that came this year. I guess that was this year, right? Had to yep. be. Yeah, it was that, right around the watch launch. Yeah, right around the watch launch. Um, a truly, truly, almost book length New Yorker profile on Johnny Ive, and uh, uh, when he was in the the guy who wrote it was in the design lab. One of the tables, you know, several of the tables had those black shrouds over them, and you could see that, you know, that there was the the outline the shape of whatever it was. You could see like the vague shape of whatever it is they were covering. But then there was one where it was completely flat. It was just a table that was completely <laughs> flat as though there was nothing on it. Why was it covered up? And then in hindsight, it was because that was the table that was going to be the, the Apple watch display table where, yes. where as a profile, as a three dimensional shape, it's exactly the same as Apple standard tables, but it has a glass top that displays the Apple watches underneath. Yeah, and that pretty ingenious thing where the badges open up the drawers underneath the retail staff. Yeah, yeah, very true. It's a very clever design, but I think it's it's fat, and it it to me it emblem, it's it's an emblem of the way that design is truly a first class uh, practice at Apple. That it's exactly the same team that is designing the tables that are in the stores to display the watch, as who displayed the watch itself designed the, the watch itself and who designed the packaging for the watch. Right. The, yeah. They want to control the experience the entire way through the product's life. Basically. Right. Right. The store itself is a, is a product. The, the, including, you know, the lighting, the, the surface that's used for the floor, the dimensions, the tables, um, the products themselves are products. And yeah. the packaging are products. And the process is whereby that goes from the table to you in the bag. And, and the entire thing is just brilliantly engineered. Yeah. And I feel like that's unique at that, you know, at Apple. And I don't know. I don't know. It's, I think it would be very difficult for other companies to, to replicate. All right. June, WWDC. Yes. Uh, I would say the clunker of the bunch. What, I think there was a threefold announcement fundamentally iOS 9, macOS 10.11, macOS yep. 10, 10.11, El Capitan, and Apple Music. And I think Apple Music has got to be considered the clunker of the bunch. Yeah, it was interesting because the first half, it was all, uh, yeah, and, and I think watchOS 2, I think we saw that for the first time there. But th that was all very engineering focused. And Craig Federighi did his talk. And uh, I think Kevin Lynch did the watch stuff. Um, maybe it was Jeff Williams, I forget. Uh, and then it was an incredibly abrupt change in tone when Eddie Q and then Jimmy Iovine and then Drake came out on stage, almost like a separate event that had been somehow stuck together. Yeah, it and it's funny to me, or interesting, because... Again, treating all of these things not as well. That the it, it's easy to say to try to treat the actual shipping products, the things you buy, the actual iPhone in your hand, the actual watch on your wrist, as the only things that matter because that's ultimately the most important thing. Um, but I find it instructive, and it usually pays off to treat everything from the actual, like the events 
mm-hmm. the packaging, to the ads, to you know, to all of it as looking for signs of, you know, is this as polished and coherent as it could be? I think it's interesting. And again, you can't prove a correlation, but it's interesting that the announcement event of Apple Music at WWDC's keynote was sloppy. And the actual shipping Apple Music when it first came out was sloppy and not yeah, quite coherent. When, like a sort of lack Steve of Jobs, coherence. I, I, think, I think under Steve Jobs, like he, he ran that show and almost everything that went on during that show was carefully scrutinized. And I think Tim Cook lets people run their divisions more than, um, than Steve Jobs did. Maybe it's because Apple's so big now he has to as well. And they almost run like little, little companies, especially iTunes, which you know, has its own marketing, its own events, its own uh, developers. It, has, it, it basically is its own company. And when you see these things, I, I, I don't know how much like someone like Tim Cook would play the Steve Jobs role of saying, no, you have to come out and you have to say this and I'm handling this and you're doing this. And it is more of a it is more open to each of the of the SVPs to do their own thing. And at the same time, some people just love the traditional Steve Jobs keynote. It's super polished. There's some jokes, but it's it's super on point. It's it's clear, it's concise. And then Craig Federici gets last for making jokes. So the next year we get more jokes. And then, you know, they, they start talking about Eddie doing karaoke and suddenly Eddie's, you know, Eddie's doing a little bit of dancing. And I think that they're trying to feel their way into being a kinder, kinder, friendlier presentation, but they they don't know where that line is yet. Yeah, and I feel like that that keynote in particular. I, I think without question, this year's WWDC keynote was the worst event. Apple, the worst keynote. You know, not just call it an official keynote. I'll just say keynote to include you know product and. In- introductions like september's uh, you know iphone introduction it's the worst keynote that they've had since since steve died or maybe the worst one they ever had you know in the modern era because none of the ones with steve were were bad you feel that the whole way through or just because of the apple music segment i would say just because of the apple music segment but the fact that it ran so long even if the apple music segment had been coherent and well thought out i think the fact that they blew so far past two hours was a problem um and and i say this not just for the petty reason that i really had to go to the bathroom by the end of it and (laughs) i was in the audience uh and just the fact that you you know it's a long time to just sit uh I think like the the unofficial rule that they should be two hours at the most is good, and I think it always pays out plays out when you see other companies that have long events that go too long. People, it when it ends, you don't want the media who who are giving every most people out in the world their their impression of it comes not firsthand because there's only you know even at a big place like WWDC there's only four thousand seats and most of them are you know conference attendees. Um, it, you don't want the first impression to be from media people saying that was too long. Um, but the other thing that you usually can see from other companies and that with Steve Jobs there, you'd never, never happen is you see the internal politics playing out on stage. Yeah. The fighting over, you know, that stage time is, is political capital within the company and whether it's good for the company or not, that X number of people come out and get, X number of minutes for their thing, they're all fighting for it because they're fighting for their personal stature or they're fighting for their product's stature within the company as opposed to what is the best thing for the company as a whole. You know, and I think Apple 
has uh, you know this year as well as any other year there there are with apple there are always products that in and of themselves might be worth time in a product introduction or a keynote if there's a keynote coming up but get cut because there are so many other uh, other things that are more worth it for them if they're only going to go for 90 minutes yeah, absolutely. And I believe stuff was cut from this keynote. Like my understanding is they wanted to get it down to two hours, but especially the Apple Music segment, it, it didn't even sound like it stayed on script, which is something else that you, you don't you don't see in previous keynotes. Yeah. Yeah. Like and you know, like Drake's like inexplicable, like what the hell you know, what was that? Like I just remember going back to my notes and it was like my notes are like Drake and then it's like nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and some people who aren't us, who were very young and very hip, loved that Drake was on stage. But um, I, I think when you look at it overall in terms of an Apple event, it, it, it doesn't become part of the case of whole. Right. Usually in a good one, it's it doesn't matter whether the person, if it's a very, you know, if it's some kind of famous celebrity or something like that, there still is a, there's, you can see whether you agree with it or not, whether it worked for you personally, you can understand what the point was that that person was supposed to get across. If you could cut it and it doesn't affect the event, you should cut it. And, right. and likewise, like Tim Cook's segue into baseball, which was interesting, but like you could have cut that entire, uh, he, we're going to give them all iPhone stuff and iPad stuff out of the keynote and it would not have changed the event at all. Yeah, but I can see why they put that in though. It was it was a way of emphasizing with third-party proof. that the, the, the anecdote was that, uh, I forget what team it was, if it was the Royals or who, but somebody in Major League Baseball had uh, uh, hit like a a you know like their hundredth yeah. career home run, and it landed in their own team's uh, bullpen where the relief pitchers warm up over the home run fence. So the relief pitchers on the team were in possession of this ball, which the player obviously wanted to have. So they the the relief pitchers put together a list of here's what we want you to buy us, and we'll give you the ball. And like everything everything on the list yeah. was was an Apple product and a fifty. <laughs> 50-gallon barrel of lube. Yeah, yeah and, it was great, but at a two and, almost a two-and-a-half-hour keynote, I think, you, again, you start cutting anything you can. Well, they showed it, but they also Photoshopped out the 50-gallon yeah. <laughs> barrel of lube, <laughs> which I understand why they did, because, you know, I I understand that they kind of want to keep these things G-rated, uh, if not PG, and, uh, and the 50-gallon... <laughs> gallon barrel of lube maybe makes it a little bit more bg-13 um but good god was that funny like they kind of took out the funniest part of it i agree i i do know i know what you're talking about though that if it's already going over two hours even that you you take out what is you know how much do they need to brag about that yeah um i found it worrisome though i do i honestly feel like I, I kind of feel like the most worrisome thing as an Apple watcher of the year was not any any product in particular, but the WWDC keynote as a whole. Just yeah, it, and that's it, something it, only Tim Cook can can take control of, and in, unless he wants to take control of that, I don't think we'll see that change. Like uh, it's it was one of the unique things about Steve Jobs, and it wasn't the most important thing. It was just the most the thing that we on the outside got to see was that he had an. an innate and uncanny talent as a showman that he was good he those keynotes were all entirely in his head and of course they've always been broken up into segments because that's how you do it but that he had this ability like from you know seat two 
watching, you know, Phil Schiller come out and do the introduction for the new MacBook or PowerBook or whatever it was going back in time. And then this, and that he could just close his eyes and just see how this whole thing would play out and feel as a 90 minute show and yes. could figure out things like, you know what? Let's not introduce this at the end as one more thing. Let's move it up front and blow people away right out of the gate, you know, and, and could just see how that would play, you know, and knew which, you know, and, you know, some of it's arbitrary and you can quibble with it, but that he, you know, like a film director could just sort of feel how, uh, you know, whether these scenes are good in and of themselves, what do they combine to as a whole as a show? And there was, and, and combine the showmanship with the, absolute unquestioned authority of i don't care who you are i don't care if you're you know senior vice president of whatever this thing that you want to get you know that we we've been rehearsing for two weeks and you you know want the stage time to do if i've decide the night before the keynote that that whole thing is cut because it just doesn't yeah. play right that's it you know there's <laughs> no you know tough luck and i kind of feel like i kind of just feel like that whole apple um I don't know. I just feel like that whole Apple Music intro was that nobody was there with the authority to say, you know what, Eddie, this just isn't this isn't ready. There's very few things. Like a lot of people will say this wouldn't happen if Steve Jobs was around, and usually that they have they have no idea what Steve Jobs would have decided at any moment or not. But this is one of those few things where you can look back at the long history of Apple keynotes and see that he had a rhythm and a pace and a delivery and a concept for these things that, you know, was just beyond anyone else in the industry. And we're not we're not getting that anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really, uh, uh, I hesitate to ever pull that, play that card, but I would say that that keynote and the Apple music, music segment in particular, that's one of the few where I would say that wouldn't happen if Steve was still around. Yeah. Well, it's one of the, it's one of the few things where you can do it because he was, it was, there was no one intermediating Steve Jobs and you, he was on stage and he was talking to the audience. It was incredibly direct. Uh, so it's, it, it's not behind the scenes and who was in charge of this and who did that. It, it was Steve Jobs talking to us. Um, and I think that's an easy thing to talk about. Right, and I've heard it from you know, uh, you know people who work at Apple, um, you know that that Steve was the guy. You know that he didn't just show up, and there wasn't somebody else organizing the show. He really was yeah. putting the show together. And I've also heard it from uh, you know like people who worked at third party companies, but who were getting you know were invited by Apple to you know come on stage as you know. You, you know, you might, and it's funny, they always, it's always exactly the same, which is that they get invited to come out, they go into sequester. <laughs> it's like, you're pretty much like locked into like Apple, yeah. a very nice prison. Um, and you rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. And you have no idea whether you're actually going to be in the keynote until, you know, like the night before. And even then, you, you know, it might be you're in, you're out. Yeah, and their events team is absolutely spectacular, and they do a fantastic job. But they they don't control who's up on stage for how long or saying what. That's become the the executive in charge of that thing, and it's no right. longer just Steve Jobs. Right, and I do kind of feel. Bottom line is that it's sort of effectively a committee now, and it mm -hmm. might be a small committee. Uh, you know, Schiller, Eddie Q, Shirley, Tim Cook. Uh, you know, and I think uh, I wouldn't underestimate, even though he's not on stage personally, I wouldn't underestimate Johnny Ives' influence on these things, on, mm -hmm. on the events. Uh, you know, the fact that he does his in pre-recorded films is doesn't make him less involved, I think, in the structure of the events. 
Yeah, and even those, those videos used to have faces in them, they used to have several people, uh, like Van Richo would sometimes appear in them, definitely uh, Bob Mansfield in, in previous years, and this year it was just voiceover, Yeah, and it was just Johnny Ive. Yeah, more cinematic, less yeah. less documentary style, and more, I don't know, like product, like more advertising style. And to your point about Apple Music uh, being a sloppy product, the thing to me is when they made that announcement, when Jimmy, when Jimmy Iovine said one single thought around music, and you just start thinking about that from an interface um, perspective and how many masters that has to that has to save all, like it has to serve all the traditional people like Jim Dalrymple who have 40,000 songs on their hard drive. It has to serve people who only want to stream music. They had a social network built into there, so it has to you know, be accessible. And if you put that in a separate app, no one is ever going to open it by itself. And it, it creates almost an impossible problem to be solved can i tell you a funny story i heard about jimmy yeah i'm fine absolutely <laughs> this is absolutely positively unverifiable because this is like fourth hand <laughs> maybe like a fourth hand <laughs> story but in terms of the gist of the story is that jimmy yovine is a, a from people who've had to deal with him within apple is eye-rolling <laughs> And that at one point when they were talking about what to do with Apple Music, he tossed out in a meeting <laughs> the idea that what if we just what if we get rid of apps and when you just turn on your iPhone, there's your music. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, wouldn't that just be wouldn't that just be like what the iPod was? And he was like, No, no, it's still your phone. And you're on the, you know, you have the internet, but you don't have to worry about apps. You just turn on your phone, and there's your music. Streaming Taylor Swift the minute you turn on your phone. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. I did not hear that from anybody at Apple. I heard that from somebody who, who worked at Apple a long time ago and still has friends at Apple. Yeah, but that I mean, that's the kind of stories where you know someone whose job it is isn't to implement like isn't implement things on a, on the atom or the bit or the pixel level. We'll just throw those kinds of things out. Turn on your phone and there's your music. <laughs> Punchier. Uh, what was the event that J Jimmy Yovine came out and it was was that the the uh, the WWC keynote? Yeah, he, he, well, he definitely came out during the WWC keynote. And and where he said something that seemed like a reference. What was it? He was like a reference back to like a, a classic Apple moment, and people applauded, but he didn't get it, and he got confused and like turned around and looked at the slide. Uh, no, I don't recall. Oh, I forget. I forget the exact details of it, but it was like, it probably wasn't one more thing, but I like, imagine that he was like, yeah. if he had said one more thing and everybody like kind of clapped and applauded and he didn't even get that that was something that people who followed Apple for a long time would get. And so he thought maybe something had gone wrong with the slides and something a glitch was on the slide behind him and that's why people were laughing to him inexplicably and so he got like he paused and like turned around and looked at the slide but the slide was right and then that only served to discombobulate him even further because now he now he had no idea why people were laughing and it was very very awkward I mean, it's always been hard to enculturate people into Apple, and it's especially hard when you're getting this many new people. But when these people come in at executive levels, it's almost impossible. So you have someone who's used to working in LA and with Hollywood and with recording studios, and you get them in a meeting with people who've been making you know, shiny boxes all, all their lives. It's, it's, it's going to be a clash. It's From the outside, it seems like maybe Angela Arns is doing well, though. 
I think so. I mean, this 16 Minutes was also a bit of her coming out. And I, I always thought, I think we talked about it last year, that she, because she was so vocal um, in her previous gig, that she would be more of a spokesperson for Apple and she would talk about retail more. Uh, but apparently she's been hard at work behind the scenes, just melding the online and retail operations and, and getting the new store concepts going. It sounds like it was funny because a couple of weeks ago, people someone wrote an article saying, "Where's Angela Aaron's? Why she disappeared?" And yeah, people on campus like, "Well, we see her all the time." I right. understand the article. <laughs> uh, I kind of feel like people there's, uh, you know, and again, I think it fits in with a year in review and talking about these events that um, that this year there were more women on stage from Apple um, during these events than ever before. Um, and that's a good thing. And I don't think it is purely happenstance. I think that it's something they're aware of internally. Uh, I, I asked Phil Schuller about it on stage on the talk show after WWDC. Um, absolutely. You know, they're aware of it, but you know, it's, it has to be, it's not like we're going to find a woman to do this. It's there have to be, the real problem is that wasn't that they didn't put women on stage. It's that they didn't have women in positions where it was their products doing it, right? Yeah, it's, and not, it, to, not to make excuses for it, but Apple is an older company, and older companies, they, they've had established people. Like Phil Schiller has been there for a long time, Eddie Q, Tim Cook, all these people have been there for decades, and they're amongst the best in the world. Where a new startup, they would have a much different um, demographic starting out the gate than, than Apple would. Right. They don't. It's not like they hire show people to to present these things on stage at their events. The the products and services, whatever there is that they're announcing, are being presented by the people who are in charge of them and who yes. know them best and who have shepherded them through to existence. And so the fact that historically women uh, have been underrepresented on stage at Apple events isn't a doesn't mean that Apple has a problem picking who gets to go on stage in the events. The, the problem is that they don't have enough women in positions of authority, running teams within the company, yeah, or who their would, executive team, most most specifically, right? Who would therefore be the person to come on stage and do it? Um, you know, and obviously that's changing uh, uh, with Apple Pay. Who's that? Her name escapes me at the moment. Um, I'm blanking on it too. Yeah, Apple Pay and Apple News. Yes. Um, uh, both were represented by women, et cetera. So uh, for the people who are saying, well, where's Angela Arntz? Well, they're not going to bring Angela Arntz on stage to talk about a new MacBook or something like that. It's not just, well, there's a woman on the SVP leadership team, therefore they should have her come out and do something. Uh, it's only going to make sense for her to come on stage when it, it there's some kind of retail um, news that they want to talk about. And I think that's inevitable at, at some point. There's going to be something that you know happens with retail that they're going to want to talk about at one of these events, and of course, it's going to be her to talk about it. Yeah, retail or fashion, and those are the things that Tim Cook used to speak about, and they unfortunately cut those at the same time they brought Angela Aaron's on because Tim Cook doesn't spend time on stage talking about them anymore either. Yeah, well, I don't know about fashion though, because fashion it would be too. Uh, I guess I could imagine maybe with the watch that there would be something to do with the watch as a product that its relation to the fashion industry would make sense to have Angela Arntz be the person to do it. Because it's also, I think, inextricably tied to retail, where it's not just Apple's retail, but retail in general, and the partnerships that they have with uh, fashion-related retailers that aren't the Apple store. 
Yeah, and it's you and I know because we we have a lot of mutual friends there. But there are phenomenally talented women engineers at Apple, and women program managers, and designers, and developers. And d- those people don't just don't get to talk on, on keynotes, right? Whether the, you know at any male, female doesn't even matter. That's just not Apple doesn't run those type of keynotes where dozens of you know mid level. You get an occasional Chris Latner. Like, I think that was a huge exception too. I don't think anyone like Chris Latner had ever spoken at a, a keynote before. Right. As opposed to the the afternoon State of the Union yes. keynote, which is you know where he's been. He has spoken before, and where you would expect it. And this year we had the phenomenal woman in charge of clock faces uh, get a, did a tremendous talk at the State of the Union this year. Hmm. I remember that. That was yeah. great. Um, anyway. I did think I did think on sixty minutes. I've seen Angela Arndt speak before, especially you know after when, you know when she first got hired and they announced it, and, and I was researching into it. Um, but her her uh, stint on the sixty minutes uh, segment did reiterate, you know, the boy she's a, a remarkably cogent and, and thoughtful person. Yeah, no, and I agree. But I do think that it's great that Apple is doing this, and it's similar to when Tim Cook came out. He said, "Because you know, if it was just up to me, I wouldn't, because I'm a private person." But it's important to be a role model, and I think it's important to have diverse people up on stage and super successful positions in super successful companies like Apple to be those those role models. And you you have to give them opportunity. Craig Federighi wasn't great his first WWDC, but he's terrific now. And Jeff Williams, two events in, much better presenter. And if you give them these opportunities, they could be just as phenomenal. And it's a super deep bench. Like you have, you know, Greg Joswiak, also phenomenal, who didn't get any time, I don't think at all on stage this year. Um, but you also have, you know, the woman in charge of, of iPhone marketing is phenomenal. And there, there will be opportunities when they get stage time. And it'll just make, I think, the company better for everybody. Yeah. Uh, what else about it at WWDC? Anything else? Uh, Swift 2.0, and I think that's where they announced that it was going to open source. Oh, that is true. Uh, it is when they announced that it would go open source by the end of the year, and they, they did hit that. Um, I don't really have much to say about that. I mean, I think I kind of covered that last week with yeah. <laughs> Craig, Craig, a little bit. <laughs> Craig Federighi. Talk about stacking the guest deck. I don't think we need to. I don't think we need to cover Swift on this episode. <laughs> Let's just suffice it to say it was a pretty big deal, and it seems to be yes. going very, very well. Yes. Um, uh, content blockers ended up being another thing that enormous amounts of angst and anxiety and, and stress were spilt over, and again at the end of the year, we're hardly mentioning them. Yeah, and doesn't seem you know, yeah, you know, doesn't seem to have really changed anything significant. I think it's great. I, I certainly I, I enjoy running them, uh, uh, and I do think that they make for a noticeable improvement. But I don't think that they've bankrupted any, uh, or 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 are even on pace to bankrupt any media properties. And I'm kind of sad about that because I thought that was one of because the industry is just it's horrible and intransigent, and that was one of the few things that could scare it out of its complacency. And I don't think it's done a good enough job scaring them to their bottom dollars yet. Yeah, I feel like there was more talk about that uh, when they were when it was first come out, and and yeah. or actually right before they came out, really, when people thought, you know, good God, you know, a week from now, seventy percent of our mobile is going to disappear. Yes. Um, but in hindsight, you know, you know, there was like a day or two where the the. Uh, app store charts were dominated by yeah. uh, uh, content blockers and then not so much yeah um, hopefully next year that'll spike again um so what about the summer anything over the summer 
I don't think so. Uh, there was some interesting stuff. Like the, out of nowhere, an iPod Touch 6 finally came out. A modern iPod Touch. Oh, that is true. That was like July, right? It was yeah. like the middle of July. Yeah, it didn't really do... I mean, it, it was exact same design. It did have a modern an A7 processor. Uh, so it, it's 64-bit. Uh, and that, that was about all that, that came with it. There were some new iPod colors as well, but the iPod line didn't change at all. No. Um... Do you think that the uh, do you think that this might be it for the iPod Touch? I think it's getting. I think the pressure from the iPhones being more and more available and affordable, and the iPod, the iPad Mini being as popular as it is, kind of squeezes out the iPod Touch in many ways. It's still the cheapest, absolute cheapest way to get to the App Store, but I think the App Store now is a proven value, and people are willing to pay a little bit more to get into it in order to get more functionality from it. I was surprised by. Um... I think I've seen this from a few other places too, but like, um, like when I think it was United or one of these airlines was like, we're going to buy 10,000 iPhones and give them to all of our gate agents and flight attendants and and et cetera, um, that they weren't iPod touches that it seems to me like it would make more sense for that to be an iPod touch lower price. You know, let's presume that there's some kind of workable, you know, Wi-Fi in the, the airport that they can use. Um, that they wouldn't need to be a full... Why would you spend the extra money, hundreds of extra dollars per unit for the phone when it doesn't really make sense for them to be phone if they're just using them for that? But that's what they're using, the phone. Yeah, and it's probably a greater dynamic where you have sort of existing carrier relationships with enterprise you know, companies and they're buying them in the thousands. Uh, and you know, if people are still wondering why they're 16 gigabyte iPhones, that's, that's one of the big reasons is institutional buyers. So it's almost like they just move from BlackBerry to iPhone or, or to something else. Hmm. Uh, but it wasn't, I don't know, to me it wasn't. And they're sort of like web portals. All they do is access web portals or business to you know, B2B apps. So they, they need almost nothing but a web connection. Yeah. Oh, it just, it just uh, her name just popped into my head. Jennifer Bailey. Yes. <laughs> it was killing me. <laughs> Jennifer Bailey is the Apple executive who, who runs Apple Pay under Eddie Q. Yes. Um, anything else in the summer? A whole bunch of other stuff, I think. Yeah, but she was the one who was uh, on stage, Ap- at least. No, I think that, I mean, there was a minor stuff, like Apple killed one-to-one, um, but very little else happened until the monstrous event in September. Right, so before we get to that, let's let's thank uh, our next sponsor, and it's our good friends at Hello, H-U-L-L-O. Um, Hello makes uh, uh, pillows, literally. I mean, that, this is the product that, that I'm here to tell you about. It is a pillow. Have you ever tried a buckwheat hole, H-U-L-L, pillow? This is a style of pillow that has been popular for centuries throughout Asia. Um, it's The best way to describe it is that it's sort of like a beanbag pillow. You can feel them. They're almost like they feel like maybe like small coffee beans inside the pillow. Uh, definitely, if you pick one up and shake it, you can hear it. It, it, it feels like something full of, of beans, but they're not really beans. They're, they're buckwheat holes. Uh, why would you want to do this? It sounds crazy, especially if all you've ever done is sleep on a traditional feather style or, or you know, artificial or real feather, whatever, but there's that similar sort of puffy type pillow. Uh, a buckwheat hole pillow conforms to your body and provides cool, comfortable support. Uh, air breathes through it in a way that it can't. It flows freely through this in a way that keeps you cool all night long. You don't get sweaty. Your head doesn't get hot on the pillow. Uh, it's super easy to adjust. You buy one of these things, 
and you if if you think it's too thick out of the box all you do is just unzip it and remove some of the holes at any time it's it's really you know really so totally clean it's just just a bunch of these beans that you take out uh so you can adjust it at any time very very easy it's made in the usa with quality construction and materials i've had one i think for over a year now uh my wife and i both have them uh and Definitely is different. Uh, definitely is not uh, like it's a different style of pillow. Uh, but once we got used to it, uh, which didn't take long, it, it really does. Uh, I, I like it a lot. I really do. Uh, it's pre-shrunken, durable twill cotton case. has a high-quality Dunlap hidden zipper. Uh, and the buckwheat hole fill is grown and milled in uh, North Dakota, right here in the United States. It's an environmentally friendly an organic product. No chemical-based foams or feathers or anything like that in there. Just 100% uh, unbleached certified cotton on the outside and these buckwheat holes on the inside. So they have different sizes, uh, starting small as 50 bucks, uh, standard size $79, king size $129. Uh, you can save money, though, uh, by buying more than one and... Uh, they have a special URL just for listeners of the show. It's HelloPillow, H-U-L-L-O-P-I-L-L-O-W.com slash talk show. And last but not least, 1% of all of their company profits are contributed to the Nature Conservancy. So if you're in the market for a new pillow, give them a shot. Give Hello Pillow a shot. Really, really interesting. Very different. Um, and HelloPillow.com slash talk show. No, the that's that's the url all right september yeah boy i i, I feel like maybe we should have started with this because it's <laughs> it was a big event. well they only did one fall event this year so they put everything into it yeah i i i in hindsight you know i feel like that's probably smart and i feel like the other thing too is to go circle back to what i said about wwdc i feel like they uh, clarified the messaging and the the coherency of the event significantly i mm -hmm. i can't help but suspect that internally they they recognized that the wwdc keynote was not up to their own standards and the september event might have been even extra sharp because of it yeah it was for everything that they covered and they it was so big they didn't even have time to cover os 10 or the mac they managed to get it done in i think four well put together segments yeah, I mean, and you know, it's if we're gonna look back at the year, I mean, uh, you know, easily the the biggest mistake I published on Daring Fireball was the night before the event, predicting that there's no way they're gonna have only one event for the for the fall. Well, they hadn't, like, they hadn't before. It had been iPhone and iPods or something else in in September, and then Mac and, and iPad in October. Yeah, for, I think two years or three years before that. But yeah. this year they had no no new Mac. They had the 4K iMac, but they, they sort of showed that off already with the 5K, 5K iMac the year before. Um, well, I think if they wanted to, they could have. I think the easiest way that they could have done it would be to hold the iPad Pro for October and have a yes. separate event just for the iPad Pro and then to fill out the event uh, demo El Capitan and boom, there you go. There's a little smaller event in October. And it wasn't ready to ship anyway, so it wouldn't have even delayed the shipping of the iPad Pro. Although then, they wanted to get LCAP out earlier this year, I think it, it shipped on September 30th, which would have pulled it out of that event. 
Yeah, but it wouldn't have. It would have been fine if they would have yeah. held El Capitan. It wouldn't have, you know, if they wanted to. I think it's just that they didn't want to. But the, you know, it wasn't just my argument that I don't think they're going to have just one event. Wasn't just that they ha- have had two events for years. It was that if they only have one event, there's no way they're going to cover all this stuff. Yeah. And and some of these <laughs> things are going to have to be cut. And so I was right about that. That that some of these things would have to be cut, and they would go through the fall without even even redemoing the tentpole features of El Capitan on stage. Um, I was just wrong that they would might be willing to do that. But they I think that's a good sign. They had the release date in the sidebar of the email and the slide on the, sh- on the stage. <laughs> right. That's, this is how little time El Cap got on that event, <laughs> that when they announced the shipping date, it was a screenshot of, I think it was for the iPad Pro, right? Yeah, it was the mail app, and you right. see it was a mail from Phil. In the it was like Phil, yeah, like Phil. E- it was like an email from Phil Schiller to to Federighi or somebody yep. saying like, uh, "Yeah, El Cap ship date will be September thirtieth. Top secret. Don't tell anyone." And it was just in the screenshot to the mail client. <laughs> and then very quickly they had to get that up on Apple.com, so otherwise it would have been pandemonium with everyone calling to see if that was serious or not. Right? Was it a joke or was it not? <laughs> We sat together for that one, right? It was yes. me and you and Clayton Morris, right? Yes. <laughs> I seem to re- I remember when that came up and we like like we were whispering with each other like, was that real? Did I see that? Do you think that's do you think that's what they mean? Yeah, um, and it, it was I mean, it started off with Jeff Williams and the watch and it, it's interesting because they showed off new watch bands that you know Johnny I've had shown off I think at a at a Paris show, fashion show earlier in the year and then they announced Apple Watch Hermès. Uh, as I guess the, the 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 first real example of Apple partnering with a fashion shop, uh, you know, out, outside of their own, which was super interesting to me. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, it makes me wonder about you know future things like the car and stuff like that. And yeah. will there be? And you know, again, wouldn't it, it would be interesting even if it wasn't like to partner with an existing car company, but again, like maybe to partner with Hermes and have like a car come out with an Hermes designed interior or something like that yeah i mean again they're going to want to have products that are introductory that get people in the door they're going to have the the product that most people end up buying which is usually the middle of the road product and they're going to want to have premium products people who want the absolute best and when you get to things like cars and watches with the absolute best it it isn't just about speeds and feeds wouldn't that be interesting i wonder just this had never really occurred to me before but in the way that they, for things like the car, they have to be thinking in the scope of a decade, right? That the thing got started at least three, four, five years ago, maybe even more. And is probably at least three, four, five years away mm-hmm. from coming to market. That this is something that they've had to think, you know, a decade long window for. Um, and in terms of what you and I talked about, you know, earlier in the show about what was the point of the gold Apple Watch edition models and going through all this and selling these things at these high prices for something that was going to sell in such low quantities. I wonder if part of it isn't getting, you know, rehearsing sort of going through the the bifurcated levels of product based on significantly different orders of magnitude, different prices um, and partnering with companies and, and creating truly luxurious um, materials, using truly luxurious materials to separate these segments, not so much for the watch itself, but for the eventual car. 
because in with think, a yeah. car that's it's going to be significantly more money and way more important that there are maybe maybe who knows maybe the car will come out and there's one model and it's you know $25,000 and that's it but somehow I don't think so yeah, no, absolutely. And that's why I think segmentation, again, was so important for Apple this year, because as you get into, as you become a certain size, your your growth becomes limited and you have to start segmenting. And as you get into other product lines, you can't just assume that they work the same way that your existing product lines do. Apple's been very canny about avoiding the pitfalls that have hit a lot of other technology companies. And part of the reason is that they they sort of think through these things. They pick something, they focus on it, and they experiment in, in a myriad of different ways, including a lot of prototyping, but also a lot of things like maybe like doing Apple Watch Hermes or Edition or things like that, so that when they get into things like watches and things like cars, they're not presenting them the way they present, you know, an iPod Shuffle. They're presenting them within the context of that product. Yeah. Um, I did think, I do think it was interesting too that by September, you just mentioned, you mentioned this a minute or two ago that um, just, it was a year after Apple Watch was initially unveiled but it was really just uh, may june july august so five months after yeah. it actually hit market where they had all new bands and straps and and didn't just add new bands and straps but actually replaced some of the earlier colors so some of the pastels colored sport bands with uh, to my eyes a, a, a much more attractive overall lineup of colors and Watch OS 2, it shipped five months after Watch OS 1, which is very fast, even in Apple's uh, usual product rollouts. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm more intrigued by the, the hardware differences yeah. in the bands than, than the OS, because I kind of feel like Watch OS 2, calling it a 2.0 was, is a little marketing-y, you know, it's really sort of, it was to me closer to here's the watch OS we really had wanted to ship originally. Absolutely. It was it round it filled in all the little gaps that were obviously missing from the first one. Right. And there's a big difference obviously with the native apps, you know, third party native apps being able to run right on a watch as opposed to just being projected on the watch from your phone, like like the the original watch kit apps. Um but other than that, it's really hard to point to anything in watch OS two point that was really a two point feature. You yeah, know, it's interesting though that it was decoupled. Like they've sort of decoupled it. They didn't. You didn't have to wait for a new watch to get WatchOS 2.0. They were willing to use that sort of marketing lingo with mid mid cycle almost. Yeah, it yeah. just shows that the watch is a very. They're treating the watch as a very different sort of product than they have the phones previously. Yeah, I almost feel like again, part of it is that they've gone through the iPhone to iPhone 3G transition within the first year, as opposed mm -hmm. to waiting an entire year for it. Yeah. Um. What was the other thing? Oh, and, and the fact that so many, I mean, uh, it's not even, you don't even have to conjecture. It's not like speculation or rumor that some of the features, a lot of the features in watchOS 2 were originally meant for watchOS 1 because yeah. they showed them a year ago, you know, at the original watch event, uh, things like like the additional watch faces, like the hey, pick your own, choose your own photo from your photo library and have that as your watch face. They showed that in 2014 and it wasn't there when it shipped in in 2015 and some of the faces had the time travel already in them you know so it, like all the stuff that we saw was just logical completions of the things that had been set up in the first version right it almost you know the, the fact that time travel wasn't there originally almost it it defeated the existence of the the crown yes 
that the crown was meant to be there for that sort of, you know, here, if you want to see where you're going to be later in the afternoon, just look at your watch and spin the, spin the crown. And to your earlier point, I mean, it just it, they were not capable of getting it ready in that point. So should they have waited until September to release it? No, it was nice to get it out early and they can add those things as they're going. Yeah. It, the other thing that I, I want to talk about on that is the, uh, the rumors, and I don't doubt them, but that optimistically they had hoped to ship the watch a year ago, you know, by the end of 2014. Uh, and, you know, maybe you just need to have a goal like that to get it so that mm-hmm. it does ship in early 2015. But I feel like for these new products uh, where they have these, you know, I mean, just compare the pencil, which is less of a, at least at this point, you know, clearly not as big a deal as the watch. But the fact that here we are going into the holidays and somebody who at December 14th was like, oh, I know, I, I want to get one more present for my significant other. I'll, yes. I'll get him an Apple pencil. Um couldn't do it in time, but with the watch you could, because the watch got those kinks out of the operational and the the manufacturing system in the first half of the year, rather than unveiling in the in the fourth quarter. Absolutely, and it's it's worse for Apple because they lose the sales on those keyboards and on those pencils that just aren't in aren't on the shelves. Yeah, you can't. I that's I I I, I just feel like it's so much easier to sell. Well, what the hell? I'll just get the pencil and the, the yep. expensive smart keyboard while I'm buying this $1,100 iPad. Than later on, there's no doubt in my mind that they, if they had full availability on those, they would have sold more of them than they will. Because some number of people who did buy the iPad Pro and when they bought it wanted to buy the pencil, maybe will never get back around to buying it. Even when and we've all heard stories Apple. about the original, like the you know the, the golden path on the original iPhone that Steve Jobs demonstrated in 2007, how he had to stick to it or the entire thing would have just collapsed on. St- <laughs> like getting those first products out is extremely hard, and you who knows what the internal dates are for these things, but they get them out as soon as they can. <laughs> it was like you had to. It was something to the effect of like he had to demo Safari and load the New yeah. York Times web page first, and then go to Mail. And if he had gone to Mail first and then tried to load Safari, like it wouldn't <laughs> have been enough RAM, and it wouldn't, you know, the yeah. full web page wouldn't have loaded, or something like you know to that effect. You had to do every one of those things in the right order. Yeah, and a lot of the stuff comes in hot now, and whether that's because they're doing too much or because they're on certain schedules, it, it's hard to say. But they do run absolutely as fast as they can. To get that stuff out, um, what else was in September? So there was Apple TV, new Apple TV, yeah, iPad Pro, the pencil. The Apple TV course- was really strange for me because the Apple TV uh, they they haven't shipped one previously since two thousand since two thousand twelve, March two thousand twelve, and they'd worked on a bunch of different ones. They'd worked on set top boxes, on like recording boxes. I think like just a whole different. The strategy for that Apple TV just kept changing. And they, they just didn't ship anything. And finally, they sort of settled on this box, which is all I ever wanted from them, was just a better Apple TV that ran apps. But because it took them so long to settle on it, that product also came in hot and didn't have things like you know Siri for Apple Music, didn't have finished versions of the apps on it, didn't even get the podcast app out. So that, that to me was like a, almost like a very strange, maybe the strangest release for Apple in a long time. Yeah, especially given all of the, to my you know, me at least, it's a really strong rumors that it was uh, heading into WWDC that it was going to be announced then. And of course, you know, we just said how long WWDC was, yeah. if, you know, there wasn't room for it. Um, but if there was any sort of thought in anybody's head that, well, maybe Apple TV just got cut from WWDC just because of time, yeah. I, I think the fact that it 
was as hard for them to get it out by the end of 2015 as it was shows that no, it just wasn't ready at the time. Yeah, and again, spectacular team, super smart people working on it, but I, I, I don't think a clear product direction was set for it early enough in the development cycle. Yeah, um, I'm liking mine a lot. I, I, I really like it. I, I, I like my old Apple TV, and most of the time that I'm watching TV is spent using Apple TV. You know, likewise. Um, but I find, uh, you know, as it settles in, and now it, it doesn't feel like the new Apple TV to me anymore. It feels just like this is Apple TV. I really like it a lot. I feel like there's still some fine tuning to be done on the touchpad sensitivity, mm-hmm. um, but it's you know I like it a lot. I really really do. And I, I cut the cable cord several years ago, and it's the only thing that's connected to my TV now. And I watched it almost all day, every day. And my favorite thing about it is that it, a lot of it can be updated server side. So like the TV app shipped, and it it really wasn't finished. It didn't do everything that the original TV app did. But over time, you you can see it. Like they used to not they used to sort the order of the shows based on what you purchased. Even if it was an old show that would never be updated, it would sit on top, and new episodes are coming into other shows, and you wouldn't be able to find them. And now they fixed all that, so it kind of sorts based on. On recent episodes and they've added the the Siri for Apple Music and they're they're fixing a lot of it as it goes. And it probably has it's the best example. I know it's also an iOS, but it's the best example of my favorite feature this year, which is last year or the year before it was um, extensibility. And this year it's the on-demand resources, where they've got this whole philosophy now of all the stuff you use all the time frequently and, and all the new stuff is going to be right there available on the uh, flash chip super fast and the stuff you don't use we're going to keep up on the cloud and then bring it down to you when you need it so effectively you have this you have server-side cloud worth of all this content but it doesn't slow down your machine when you're using it not like my ps3 which i think took four hours of updates every time i turned it on i i wonder how well games are doing it's certain the app store for Apple TV is I would call it vibrant. And every time I take mm-hmm. a look at it, there's definitely new stuff. And so there's they absolutely have activity on it. Um but are people actually using them? I would say I have to say, just to compare and contrast, I would say with the watch, they absolutely got developers to develop for it. I don't think many people are using third-party apps on their watch with much frequency. No, I, I agree. It just isn't a great platform for that yet. It's too slow and it's too limited. Uh, and arguably, maybe it, it won't be the same kind of app platform that the phone is right. right when they figure it out. That might it may well be, and it doesn't necessarily mean that the watch itself, as a long-term device, isn't useful or successful. It just may mean that apps aren't. A big part of that with apple tv i think the potential is clearly there you know for Mm -hmm. gaming and and whatever else but it's hard to tell i don't know i don't know how to gauge that from from our perspective there's some hard stuff there like they don't include a bundled uh gamepad in it you have to get a third-party gamepad and because of that they changed their minds on whether you had to support whether you could just offer exclusive gamepad games originally you could but then they said no you also had to support the siri remote which led to some gaming compromises and as fantastic as i think odr is a lot of things just don't support it yet like i don't know if unity or unreal support it yet which means people can't just take their existing games and dump them on apple tv there's a lot of work involved in getting them to do that sort of quick staging for the download and then downloading the additional resources odr so meaning the on on demand resources. on demand resources yeah right. i apologize uh, yeah so it's just a way of staging apps like the, the idea of odr is that you never want someone on their tv to hit a button and say storage is full please delete something 
because that's a horrible experience on a console. So you want it to intelligently manage all that stuff. But the drawback is it has to download a really small file in the beginning to see how much space there is and how much else it has to pull down. Right. And that means that on the developer side, they have to go through and, part and slice up their app essentially so that it can deliver itself in chunks. And that's new. It's not just taking your existing game and dumping it on the Apple TV. Yeah, Jonas just ran into that with the... Uh the PS4 we have in the house where he got, and it's funny because it was, um, he got a couple of games, uh, from family members, uh, you know, outside the family, you know, mm -hmm. like Amy's mom got him two PlayStation games and got them on disc. And I understand like as a gift, why that's better, you know, that it's an actual thing you can unwrap and there's a tangibleness to it but i was thinking in the back of my head that's sort of a pain in the ass like i kind of you know i'm kind of all i'm kind of done with putting discs in the machines to watch movies or play games yes um and he was happy about it and i was like oh why and he goes well the, you know the playstation's getting full and um uh, and in fact when he went to play the one he actually, for the first time, ran into, even though the game was given to him on disc, it actually generated, uh, you've got to make room on your PlayStation because it didn't even have enough space to download the patches for the game on disc. And it wasn't a huge issue. I mean, we just, you know, figured out the just a handful of games that he hasn't played recently. He could get rid of, you know, ones that he had downloaded Um and make plenty of room on the, I think it has like a 400 gigabyte drive. It didn't take much, but like you said, it's, it's not a good experience. Yeah. And I kind of feel like long-term, uh, again, you know, think about this as we go down the road. And like you said, like, well, maybe some of the, you know, like unity and some of these big gaming things don't support ODR yet. Um, it's not that it's not as important that they support it now as that they support it eventually. And within two or three years, if everybody does Apple and, you know, give Apple TV another two or three years of, you know, Johnny Sarucci's team's magic. Yes. And I'm not even making, you know, I don't want to go down the whole path of what's the point where Apple TV is technically competitive with the dedicated gaming consoles. Um or a Mac Mini, for that matter. Right, but I think you know it's it's narrowing the gap, and I think it's the sort of thing where maybe it'll never pass it, but the gap will continue to get narrower and narrower, and therefore eventually will be good enough. Um, whether it's you know how how good it is as a gaming platform now matters, but how good it's going to be overall over the next three, four, five years is more important. And getting ODR support eventually within the next year or two could make a big difference. You know, three or four years from now. Yeah, it's clearly a part of Apple's long-term strategy because Apple Music, it, it's called Nearline in database parlance. And it's, it's it, basically you prioritize frequently accessed and new data over uh, infrequently accessed and older data. And they do it for Apple Music. They do it for iCloud Photo Library. Everything that they're, they're building towards an entire environment that sort of abstracts away storage so you never have to get that little pop-up saying you're out of room. It'll just intelligently, almost like a fusion drive, it'll just intelligently manage your storage back and forth. But the compromises in general are super interesting. Like they went with 10, 100 base T instead of gigabit on the Apple TV. And it's sort of, why would they do that? But then it turns out that gigabit, because of, of the speed, it'll spike a CPU and could result in dropped frames on something that's trying to do 60 frame per second 1080p video or gaming. So they went with a more conservative chipset because the video they're streaming is not that big. So they don't need that bandwidth. And this gives them a much better control over how much load hits the processor. 
uh, and they didn't go with 4K because 4K, you know, it's not a lot of penetration yet, and HDR might be coming to 4K. So making this box, it, it upsets a lot of people, but at the same time, they made a lot of sort of smart decisions the way they make with the camera and with other aspects of their products. Uh, yeah, and I also think that they're designing for the mainstream in a you know let's keep this as simple as possible and the truth is very few people i if i had to guess very few people are hooking their apple tv up to ethernet period it's wi-fi all the way yeah and 802.11 ac is better for that because why i still plug mine in because i i, I just don't trust wi-fi connections for anything I, I get super annoyed when it stops in buffers or drops a signal or I have to reboot the router but for, for those people 802.11 ac is way more important to have a stable wi-fi connection than to have a faster ethernet connection because you notice the problems with wi-fi much more than you would with ethernet yeah but you're not the typical you know the typical person i mean i don't know no. I, I, it would be an interesting thing what do you think the percentage of people let's of of all the people who've already bought the new Apple TV, um, what percentage do you think are on Wi-Fi and Ethernet? I would bet at least 95% are Wi-Fi. You know, and Apple, um, I think you and I were both talking about this at the event. Apple has great numbers and all this stuff, even if we don't always have them. Like, there's no Bluetooth keyboard right. support, but it turns out like 2% of people use Bluetooth keyboard and they're all developers. Right, so it, and it so wasn't we, on their priority list. Right, so we complained like hell about yes. it because we had we knew that when you hook up a new Apple TV, you can just take a you know find a Bluetooth keyboard nearby, and then you can enter all your passwords conveniently. And or so, the MacBook One that we completely forgot to talk about too. Like they, oh, you, there's yeah. not a lot of ports, but almost <laughs> nobody connects their MacBook to an external display. It's like four percent of people or something, but it's all of us. Yeah, I did forget about the MacBook One. I did too. It's just such a busy year. What was that? That was March, right? Yeah. Uh, at the the same event where the uh, the Apple Watch was yes. re reintroduced, research kit, yeah. Um. Well, hold the thought on that because I'll tie that into something else. Um. Uh, and uh, well, that's where we were talking about Apple TV. Yeah. Um, I I would say with games, I don't know if it's a hit yet or not. Uh, I kind of feel like they made a mistake by by rejiggering the rule on whether you can have a game that demands a controller. Uh, I understand why maybe they wouldn't want to. Like maybe the fear was that all, if they allowed that, all the games would do it, and it would make. Or I think the problem was that if someone bought it and then found out they required a controller, they'd get upset. Like there was a hard way of telling people you need a controller to do well, this. Well, that's that's fixable though in software, right? Like that's not a very difficult pro problem to solve, because the Apple TV itself knows whether a, a a gaming controller has been configured for it. Um, yeah, and I think they were hoping to have that, but they just did not have that at launch. So, they so it it knows, you know, the system knows whether there is a dedicated gaming controller paired with it yes. or not, and. It, if it's not and the app you're trying to buy requires one, it's very easy to put up a prompt that says this game requires a gaming controller. Do you still want to buy this? Yes or no? You know. Yeah. Well, don't don't put yes or no buttons up, but buy and cancel. Don't get me started on yes and no buttons. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think that's coming. I just think they don't they didn't have it in place, so they flipped the rule. Yeah, I guess. Maybe that might have been why. Hopefully why. My hope is that they, they've changed the rule because it just wasn't ready to support it yet and that they 
fully planned to allow it. And you can see from some of the exceptions they've made that they seem to be leaning in that direction. Like they do allow you to sell a game that requires a dedicated piece of hardware, period. Like Guitar Hero is allowed to require you to buy, you know, the the physical guitar hardware. And uh, Disney Infinity is allowed to require the little infinity figurines right isn't there infin- mm-hmm. there is infinity for apple tv right yes um <laughs> i'm glad i either that or i had imagined it so like disney infinity is an ingenious i think an ingenious way to for to to make money from a game is instead of like in-app purchases like recurring revenue disney mm-hmm. infinity like to unlock characters you actually have to buy the physical character is like a little action figure. Yeah, it's like Lego thing. Dimensions and that other one that I name I keep forgetting. Right. So that's allowed, and it, but what's not, what's not allowed is to require a generic gaming controller. Period. But clearly, some games absolutely, positively need it. Yes. Uh, you know, and there's some platformers that have come out. I forget the name of the one, but there's a platformer for Apple TV it's pretty popular. And if you don't have a gaming controller, the way their way around it is that the character sort of like just runs automatically. <laughs> and it turns into more of like a one button jump type thing. When but the game is clearly meant to be played like a regular platformer where you can have full control over going left right up down and stuff Yeah, I don't like know that. if we want to get into a whole App Store uh, tangent now, but the, the, there's clearly hitting up against limitations of the old because the App Store technology is ancient and it comes from iTunes music days and it, it needs to be overhauled and it's a huge process. But the, you can't even if I if right now if I said John, this is an amazing Apple Apple TV app, I have no way of sending it to you. I have to tell you to go to search and start typing this in, and maybe you'll get the right. It, it, there are just so many things you can't do with the Apple TV because it wasn't. It, it's the furthest extreme from what the App Store was set up to do originally. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, it's just crazy, though, that there's no way, and it's, you and I run into this, if you write websites, where, like, if, um, I don't know, if if Electronic Arts has a a game, well, if ea.com slash name of the game points to their Apple TV game, well, we can link to their website, obviously, but there is no, like, Apple TV app store thing that we can link, we can't link directly to the, to the app. And even if I do, there's no, I mean, they don't, they don't surface WebKit. It's, WebKit's a private API in the Apple TV, so no one can see that and click. They have to actually physically go and start typing that in on their Apple TV anyway. Right, right. And so, A, from the perspective of writing an article about an app or a game for Apple TV, we can't really link to it directly. And B, if you're at your TV and you want to get to it, you, there's no way to... <laughs> it's, it is weird. It's a hard problem. I understand. I'm not saying this is one of those ones where I laugh because it does seem silly, but I'm not laughing because there's an obvious solution staring us in the face and it just seems incomprehensible that they didn't, you know, just do X. It's a longstanding issue. Like if, if I'm on Daring Fireball and you recommend a great Mac app, but I'm looking at it on my iPhone, I can hit that Mac app store link. It do, doesn't help me at all. The Apple Watch gets around it right. because it's it's a slave device right now so, or, or a companion device right now. So it, it just transfers the app back and forth. But I, I can't really get stuff off. You know, I can download it to iTunes, but it, it, it's sort of horrible. And it makes you think that there has to be something underway to allow for cross-platform and even web-based purchases because there are all those iTunes preview pages up there. And we just we just haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. It seems like you ought to be able to do some things that, uh, you know, the path forward would be something like uh, the way with the Kindle that 
if you tell me about this great book and send me a link to the Kindle page uh, for the book, and I'm my Kindle isn't even with me. You know, my physical Kindle hardware is at home and I'm at work. I can go and buy it now, and Amazon will just say, "Where do you want this to go?" And I can say, "Just send it to my, you know, send it to my Kindle." And when I get home, there it is. It's already on my Kindle. Uh, it seems like you ought to be able to do something like that with your Apple TV, where you ought to be able to, if you're on a computer, there should be a web version of the Apple TV app store that if you're signed into your iTunes account, you can just, you know, buy an app or download it to your Apple TV right from there. Absolutely. And they can even put up a, a prompt. If you, when you go to your Apple TV, said you began a purchase on this, do you want to confirm this purchase now? And you press yes, and it just downloads if they're really worried about, you know, people buying things by accident for the wrong platform. But it, and it likens me as iTunes is, is archaic, but it's got billions and billions of dollars of transactions going over it. So it's hard to just, to just change it, but it's, it's a bridge that, that is sort of old and crumbly and they have to make sure that that second, that new bridge is fully built out and then sort of carefully redirect traffic onto it. It's not going to be an easy swap, but I really hope sort of like how apple.com this year had that big change where store.apple.com disappeared and suddenly yeah. it was a modern website with everything integrated. I really hope the same thing is, has been going on for iTunes and one day they just flip a switch and we have a modern you know elegant version of the entire itunes store stack uh, for all the devices i still get thrown off by the new uh store.apple.com because it's i'm i'm so it's so ingrained in me that you have to go to a separate website to to buy stuff at apple or see the prices for them or something like that and the fact that you don't know but you know it's i click the shopping bag all the time expecting there to be a store there and it's just empty that's a transition that 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 team that that's the the sort of thing because it, in hindsight it feels like wow this is the way it always should have been that yeah. the team that did the work on that it's easy to overlook just how hard that is to to change something that again like you said has billions of dollars flowing yeah. through it and make a change like that and and have it come off as well as it did yeah just again we woke up and it changed and that that's pretty much exactly what you want to have happen with that stuff yeah uh, before I do the last I have one more sponsor thing but before we do that we should talk from. Uh, from the the September event, we didn't even mention the iPhone success yet, or the iPad Pro, <laughs> or the iPad Pro. <laughs> uh, the success, I you know, it's fantastic. I don't think there's much to talk about in hindsight. I mean, it's a terrific year over year upgrade versus the six. Most people don't buy them one year after another, um, but just in terms of keeping the incremental year over year it just keeps getting better every year progress moving forward it's it's about as good an update as apple's ever done yeah and i think it's it's once again an example of of the you know cuz apple goes to incredible lengths with these phones and this year it looks the same but it's got 7000 series aluminum the screen looks the same but it's got double density um, chemically treated glass it it is almost to the atom completely redesigned. It's got the Taptic engine inside it, the A9 processor inside it. Uh, it's got all the, the new rigidity to support the 3D touch because you're actually deforming the glass on a microscopic level to trigger um, the, the pressure sensitivity in the phone. It's got all these really uh, cool elements in it, but on the outside, it looks like last year's phone. I think, uh, you know, and again, maybe I'll sing a different tune a year from now, but I do think if for somebody who is on a two-year, a, a very much more typical two-year upgrade cycle than the idiotic throw money away every year, one-year upgrade cycle that you and I are on, um, uh, I, I think the S year is the better year to be on. Yeah, well, last time it was Touch ID. Time before that, it was Siri. You know, and just little things like, 
the lack of bendability. Like I think the bend gate clearly was a year ago was overblown. But it is true, you know, fundamentally it is true that with a certain amount of pressure you could bend the iPhone. And but metal some, bends, yeah, it was physics. And that some people were running into it in non-extreme circumstances, yeah. you know, that they weren't trying to be a jackass and purposefully bend it, but it did get bent. And it doesn't, you know, this phone doesn't for a couple of reasons, you know, for yeah. the increase, you know, the, the new aluminum, different structures inside that, you know, little things like that. Just I, I, I don't think there was a single faux scandal with the success. Right? The the two different processors was the closest we got. Yeah, the cl- <laughs> right. The closest we got was that they were sourcing the CPUs from uh, what TSMC. Yeah, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, and uh, from Samsung. And from Samsung, and somebody at, at initially came out with some sort of benchmark where where the Samsung one was worse. Or was well, it so it, it was interesting. It's it's an example of how like a little knowledge is dangerous, and uh, chipsets have multiple characteristics and multiple dimensions. And on on a on an artificial synthetic test, you could run those chips flat out, and because of various things, including the the die size and the different manufacturing and how they, they those chips work, you could deplete the Samsung chip faster. But that's only measuring how fast you can deplete it running at maximum. You're not saying, well, this chip is running hotter for a longer period of time. It's almost like you have two sprinters, and one is quicker off the gate. But the other one is stronger in the finish, and you're trying to you're trying to measure two seconds in who's the better who's the better sprinter. Right, that was it though. The faux scandal was that the Samsung one would run your battery lower. Yeah, you got less battery life with the Samsung, which, which is true in a synthetic benchmark, but not true in real life. Right, and I feel like even I, I I seem to recall that even the synthetic benchmark that was used, you know, other people ran it later and didn't get results anywhere near as dramatic. That there, there were, were the, differences, yeah, but it wasn't anywhere near as profound as initially thought. Being on different cell towers would lead to as, as significant a difference as running those tests on those chipsets. Right, so I, I do feel like. You know, if you're only if you're only going to get one every other year, you're better off on the S cycle than the non S cycle. So that was one of the most interesting stories for me this year was Apple's beginning that iPhone upgrade program where they're starting to move like to starting to cater people who do want to get a new iPhone every year and also sort of building up their the the trick for this is that you have to hand in your old iPhone which they can then sell in emerging markets. So it sort of it helps out with their price differential in in those emerging markets, but it also satiates the people who do want the new iPhone every year. And it's I know people say this almost sarcastically, but it is iPhone as a service almost. Yeah. Well, and I would compare it to the very well established market and you know high end you know very lucrative market of automobiles yes. and that leasing is uh, long been established as something that the car makers themselves the car dealers themselves offer you um i i hear it you know i've been as i start thinking about the fact that professionally i i seems as though i might be writing about cars sooner rather than later <laughs> I've started paying a little bit more attention, and I've noticed that a lot of car advertisements only talk about leasing prices. I yeah, mean, and you know, it's uh, it's it's exactly analogous. There's absolutely no difference, except that the iPhone costs you know like eight hundred to a thousand dollars, and cars cost you know twenty to a hundred thousand dollars. And that was sort of one of the funny other faux scandals was everyone was panicking. What's Apple going to do now that all the carriers in the U.S. have changed their structure? They're not going to be able to hide the price of the iPhone every year, ignoring that, you know, a Samsung Android phone, the high-end Android phones cost the same price that an iPhone. So it's, it's a universal problem. But also Apple and the carriers are never going to let that upfront sticker price show to consumers. They're going to have all these different deals that you'll be able to partake in. 
Yeah, it's it, the the worry over that was it, there's obviously some interesting thinking going on, and it is somebody's problem to solve and to manage, but it is definitely a manageable problem, you know. And the fact that you see BMW commercials or you hear John Hamm, you know, pitching at Mercedes commercials, and then the the dollar amount that you hear at the end is you know four hundred dollars yeah. or something like that. Well, you know. It's they're not they're not talking about this. Yeah, they don't tell you that's the cost on a Mercedes. Yeah, that it's you know eighty three thousand dollars to walk you know to just buy it in cash off the lot. Even now they'll say it's like two hundred seventy nine dollars every two weeks or something. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it's definitely you know manageable, and it's definitely what you know that to me is the the shift that it's. You know, it's you know, it's obviously more of a, a financial strategy than a product strategy, and it's the product stuff that interests me more about yeah. the iPhone and Apple. But you know, it's definitely interesting, and I definitely think it's part of the part of the, uh, you know, and it's like you said that it's just a generic sense that it's not just nerds like us who want a new iPhone every year. That maybe I am, maybe I'm overstating just how how rare you and I, you know, people like us are in terms of that. That it is that sort of becoming more of a mass market mindset. Well, and Apple is learning that. I mean, they, we saw that with the gold color iPhone 5S, and it turned out, you know, people cared more about having the new color than a lot of other things. And now the rose gold iPhone 6S, people really want to have the color that shows that they have the new iPhone. Right. And we're going to be going into the iPhone 7, and if history repeats itself, we're going to have a new design now. And that that usually is another tripping point for a bunch of people to upgrade again. Because Tim Cook said, I think it was uh, still only 30 or, or 40% of people had upgraded to a, to a new iPhone. Uh, so they have a huge potential market, not only in people switching from Android or getting their first phone, but also in people uh, turning over those iPhones. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, I don't really have much to say about the iPhone success. Great iPhone, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, great. That's it. <laughs> uh, iPad Pro, should we save it for the next segment? Sure. All right. Um, our last sponsor today, our final sponsor, is our good friends, uh, the Brower Group. Now, their app, Ubar2, launched on the talk show last year, and it was a great success. So they're back with the new Ubar3. That's just spelled U, like a lowercase u. Just think of it like the Apple I, lowercase u, and then an uppercase B-A-R. It is a dock replacement for the Mac. So we're talking, this is like good old-fashioned, nerdy type of thing that people who listen to the talk show, utility app for the Mac. Uh, the purpose of UBAR is to vastly increase your productivity. Pro users love it, uh, and they also use it to help family members or switchers because one of the things that UBAR does is you can configure it, and like any good nerd utility, it is very configurable, super configurable. So one of the ways you can do it is you can make it run like the Mac dock, but like with extra features and stuff like that. But you can also set it up to run as a Windows taskbar-style dock. So for people in your family who maybe have switched uh, to the Mac recently, and one of the things that they struggle with are the ways, all the various things that they did through the Windows taskbar that are different through the Mac, uh, you can set UBAR up to run that way. And no matter how you configure it, it looks great. Just like any great Mac utility, uh, it doesn't sacrifice visual design uh, and aesthetic beauty just for the sake of... uh, uh, you know, 
nerd type features. You know, if you want that type of stuff, if you want something ugly to, to do like that, you know, go go install Ubuntu or something like that. This is for people who use a Mac and want their stuff to look beautiful. So all sorts of shortcuts. Here's some of the nerdy stuff you can do. Hold down control when you click on an app and you can see the CPU and RAM usage for that app. Hold down shift and you can quit any app or close any of the individual windows that are open within that app just by clicking it. Uh, unresponsive apps, if you have an app that needs to be force quit, get some red background already so you can see it without even checking, you know, the force quit, uh, you know, command option escape uh, window and all sorts of customizability. You can uh, adjust the sizes. There's themes. You can uh, just like the way that the system has light and dark themes. So does U-Bar. Uh, you can even create your own custom theme. So it's almost getting into like kaleidoscope territory. Uh you name it, it's got it. You, I can't tell you everything about it. Just go to the website and check it out. But it's absolutely worth a look. And that's at ubar, U-B-A-R, app.com. And remember the coupon code. The coupon code is Retina Gruber. Retina Gruber. Remember that, and you'll uh, save uh, 50% off. It's 20 bucks ordinarily. Great price for a utility this, this serious. But with that code, you save 50%. You only pay 10 bucks. 10 bucks, and you get a great app. Uh, and one more thing. Maybe you remember this from when they sponsored the show before. This is crazy to me. Um, but the developer of this app, um, Edward Brower, that's where the Brower Group gets the name from. In addition to being a great app developer with a great sense of design and stuff like this, as a side job, I laugh because this just seems crazy. He... Uh, designs and manufactures his own beautiful mechanical watches. Uh, he's a watchmaker, in addition to making an app. And uh, he already launched his newest timepiece. It's called the Mirage, and it's available in three colors uh, on the earlier episode of the show. Each one is a limited edition of only 300 pieces, uh, and they all come with an engraved number on the back. Uh, really, really beautiful design on the dial. My very favorite thing about this watch is the dial design or at least the dial combined with the hands. Really, really love it. Um, beautiful typography, really nice, really nice. Just just the the uh, uh, the layout and the proportions. And the diameter is very, very reasonable, 40 millimeter diameter. This is not a big hacking giant watch, which a lot of modern mechanical watches are. Uh, you just have to see it yourself. And the web, there's a separate website for that. Brower, B-R-A-W-E-R, timepieces.com. And exact same code, Retina Gruber. You don't need to memorize a separate code. Uh, now, this is a serious watch. It's a mechanical watch. The retail price, $750. It's a great price for a mechanical watch. It's a lot if you're a casual wrist buyer. But this is totally, totally within the realm of what a, a handmade mechanical watch is meant to cost. But if you use that code, Retina Gruber, 40% off. And shipping is free in the U.S. and Canada. So go check them out, ubarapp.com, browertimepieces.com. And on both of them, you'll save a lot of dough if you use the code Retina Gruber. Love this guy. He's a really – he's also a very, very nice guy, Edward Brower. Um, and I, I've been emailing him about a little app that he's working on on the side. Next thing coming up. Very, very nice guy, thoughtful guy. But I kind of hate him because he makes me feel <laughs> – like, it's the same way that I get so angry at you sometimes, like, when you are so productive and, you, you know, like, I feel like I struggle to get, like, like 
one or two good pieces on Daring Fireball and a podcast out in a week, and then you have like 7,000 words on iMore and a comprehensive review of a new thing that only came out the day before and like four or five podcasts. So you make me angry. But this guy makes me angrier because he's he's running a full-time software business with a great app. The differences between Ubar 2 and 3 are humongous. It is absolutely a, a remarkable. He's got a remarkable amount of new features in there in a remarkably short number amount of time. And in the meantime, he also makes really nice. And those watches are watches. legit. I went and took a look at them after the last spot, and they're amazing. <laughs> I just don't understand. I don't understand how he how he does that. They're Renaissance people. Yeah, it makes me mad. I feel like it makes me feel like I'm running in slow motion. <laughs> uh, Apple, the iPad Pro. Yes. I I don't really have much to say about. it. I think it is absolutely remarkable. I think it is. It, 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 it is maybe the best single best of iOS device that's been made. I, I mean, I don't know how it's kind of a hard thing to settle. I mean, I could make the case for the iPhone success too. I could also make the case maybe for the iPad mini four, which yeah. I, we forgot to mention that came out in September. Um, which is a, it's a great tablet too. It is. We just, uh, we got one for Jonas upgrading a very old iPad for him and just looking at it, it's, perfect it, it is i especially it's it's to me the the difference between the mini and the the ipad air is are you old enough that you that you want things to be bigger visually because yeah. it's the exact same number of pixels and the layout's yes. identical you don't have to do anything as a developer to 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 do for that it's just do you want it smaller or do you want it big and i'm at the point now you know with the eye medical issues aside too but just at at the age that i'm at i kind of want the bigger one yeah. Um, it doesn't have the X in the processor either, but I mean, there's so few people are going to actually rep- right. push it to that limit. But for someone like you know, for someone like Jonas, who has you know perfect vision as an 11 year old or almost 12 year old, it's it, clearly the better iPad for him. He loves it. I mean, it absolutely adores the the size. Um, I can make the case for that too. But the iPad Pro, it it the it's the performance on the device that just sort of startles me. I was joking. I picked mine up in New York, like I, like I think you did. And on the way back, I, I passed by the Microsoft store, and I could hear all those Intel processors just just crying and maybe trying to jump off the table. I I want to write about this uh, soon because I think it's been. I think people have taken it the wrong way. Is is the angle of the that that this spells doom for Intel in the long run, and it's not. And, and I know part of my argument for this as just making a just like a sanity check and not just going by gut feeling or what I you know what I think makes for an interesting story, but actually trying to measure it is using like Geekbench scores and mm-hmm. showing that the iPad Pro beats the MacBook One. Um, but I mean, it's hard because this was a really good year for Apple Silicon. The Apple the A nine is a, is a real leap forward where Intel really struggled to get. Um, the the ten nanometer process out and to get Broadwell because there's a Broadwell uh, Y which is Core M I think is a marketing term in the MacBook and, and it's not a great chip so the iPad Pro hit hit it out the park while Intel during a year that Intel was struggling so that and that's a great point but I think that it it's more it's not so much like one test of these two devices at this snapshot in time but it's the overall trend line. Mm-hmm. 
And in the way that like intersecting trend lines over a long period of time at the point where they intersect, maybe that, you know, maybe next year the MacBook One is faster than next year's iPad Pro. Um, but if it is, it won't be by much. And three, four, five years from now, I don't think there's any question. Uh, and there's also the issue of being fast enough. Yes. You know, that it's it doesn't even matter whether there's other Macs or MacBooks that get faster. And and just in terms of looking at the trend line, like just go back three, four, five years and look at the original iPad or the iPad 2 or even the iPad 3 and where they stood performance-wise compared to the MacBook Airs of the time. And it was no comparison. They were, they you know, in terms of anything that you would measure like on Geekbench or something like that, they were behind. But that gap has narrowed steadily and steadily as years go by. The, iP the, the A9... Uh, chips and uh, ARM chips in general, industry-wide, are getting better faster than Intel chips because the scale is just so much bigger. I think it's also, um, again, Apple has considerable advantage in that they make their own chips. Intel has to sell those chips at a profit, and they have to support a variety of different, like they have to run Windows, they have to run Linux, they have to run OS 10, and you look at something like the A9X, um, and it can run four, sorry, three 4K streams at the same time, and that would just grind a lot of Intel, even Intel-based Macs into the ground. It just can't do that. But Apple built those chips to do it. They can purpose-build all those chips for exactly what they want to do, and that gives them an incredible amount of flexibility. And even in ARM, I mean, Qualcomm has been struggling. Samsung has been struggling. They're their own fab. They should arguably have way better chips than Apple, but they just don't have the designers. Apple's got great designers. They've got the advantage of building exactly for their hardware. I mean, if they, if they could run on Intel's 10 nanometer process, I think we'd have the best chips in the world. I think we already do, but we'd have even better ones. It's a good question. It's such an interesting question as to why, how can Samsung manufacture these for Apple, but can't do it for themselves? It's the same reason why they can't align ports on a Galaxy phone. They just it's just not something that's part they they just don't have the right. people. Um it it really is to me just eye opening when you use the iPad Pro that you know that my complaints about it trying to use it instead of a MacBook are almost entirely software based. Mm -hmm. It's just the design of iOS itself to me not being conducive to the sort of things I want to do on a Mac in terms of how do I take advantage of this big screen and how does, you know, like as much as I, I do like the split screen stuff that they've added to iOS 9, but to me, it's, it's not as, um, it's still not as useful as the way that I can have multiple things on screen at once on, on a Mac. Um, and as I wrote in my review, I, I'm frustrated at the lack of keyboard navigability. That if you're if you're supposed to fundamentally be able to use this device, if you want, while it's hooked up to a keyboard, I don't want to have to reach up and touch the screen to do some things because it's it, it really is exactly as Apple's been telling us for a long time, ergonomically terrible. Yeah, my understanding is a lot of that stuff just didn't make the cut for iOS nine, but it it has been and will be worked on. Yeah, it sort of I, makes sense that it has to be. Yeah, and I've heard from some some friends within the company, you know, that that absolutely some of these things are a frustration. Um, like including the thing I observed about the fact that um, when you command tab, the multitasking goes from left to right because yeah. they just put like a brain dead port of the Mac command tab switcher in, and the new system-wide like double click the home button and touch the screen switcher goes right to left in terms of most recent to, to oldest. 
even though the old built-in switcher that was there for iOS 7 and 8 was left to right. Yeah, you're colliding with the force press, the force swipe in on the iPhone 6s there because they wanted that. That the back gesture goes from left to right, and so the the force right. back gesture had to go from left to right. And you know the, what I heard after I wrote about some of this stuff is, yeah, we know. Yeah. <laughs> so well, they that's hit it good. first. I mean, the best thing right. about the iPad Pro right now, and if you look at the 60 minute segment, how many of the executive team members had iPad Pros in front of them? Is that it? it anything that it's going to be almost like the Steve Jobs days, where anything that doesn't work is going to get immediate executive attention. I don't trust that though. I, I would just say that I don't trust anything I saw in that in the the 60 minute thing as indicative of what they actually use. I wouldn't be surprised, but I wouldn't. I would take it all with a grain of salt Absolutely. in terms of stage management. Although apparently some of them do like that. That has become at least for now their go-to machine. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, you know, and I think it's a tremendous. Like, and uh, you know, a, a, a meeting situ you know situation is tremendous. It's almost where you'd rather have a device mm -hmm. that is less likely to distract you, and if you just want to put up a notes app and have it be full screen, and uh, I think it's tremendous for a scenario like that. Yeah, and it, it, it's interesting as a device because we are hitting this point where the MacBook has gone down to be as close as possible to an iPad and the iPad has gone up to be yeah. as close as possible to a MacBook. But both of them both of them are still very separate things. Like the MacBook doesn't have any any real touch awareness. It's not a, a, a touch-friendly environment. It's not really a mobile-friendly environment. And, and likewise, your frustrations with the keyboard on iOS, and even though split-screen is nice, there's no multi-window, there's no drag-and-drop, there aren't any of these conventions that are basically muscle memory to, to people like us now. And you sort of, there's no middle ground. You have to pick a side, and neither side is perfect. Uh, I saw somebody on Twitter the other day was uh, posted a little video where they just said, hey, finally saw the iPad Pro. You know, it's like somebody who hadn't seen one in a store yet. And it was like, here's how I tried, you know, not trying to be a jerk, but they videotaped it with their, they, you know, they shot video with their iPhone. Here's me trying to to attach a photo to a mail. And they had mail on the left and photos on the right. And they yeah. tried to tap and hold on a photo and then drag it over across that divide. And of course it didn't work. Yeah. Again, you got to figure that stuff is being worked on, but it's like, do you touch and hold? Do you for like, well, what is going to be the affordance for that sort of activity? Yeah. And it's, and they have to make sure it doesn't collide with all the other gestures that are that are being used in iOS. But I think all that is coming. I, I the last time I was on, I think we spoke about. I have this long-standing desire for iPad OS. Like I think the same way there's Watch OS and the Watch yeah. got its distinct thing, and there's there's TV OS and the Apple TV got its distinct thing. I'm glad that that the iPad is getting some features now, but I still think it needs it needs that concept of keep backboard, keep frontboard, but take springboard and think of something that really is tablet first and that takes advantage of things like the iPad Pro. Yeah, and that's the sort of thing. It was definitely the last time you were on the show. I couldn't agree more. In fact, I agree more. I I agreed then. I agree even more now that it's whether they ask what they'd call it. No, I don't think they should call it that. Just call it iOS. But yeah. what it should be fundamentally though is iPad OS. Is what if iOS was meant only for the iPad? What would it? What should it be like? And how do we do that? How do we get from here to there? Yeah, and the iPad suffers the same problem that the Mac App Store does, and that it has a much more successful sibling. So when you get resources, they go to the iOS App Store. When you get resources, it goes to the iPhone, and then they're ported up to the iPad. And now that we have broken through with Split View and with some of the keyboard stuff, I hope that that, that continues. And I know there's it's one of those things where people inside Apple have the same arguments that we have outside of Apple. Uh, and I just and I just hope that those people start to get more sway within it, because I think as a device, if Apple is confident that this is the future of personal computing for them, I think they really need 
to give it the attention it deserves. And that that brings us to the single most important product that Apple introduced in 2015, the, the smart battery case. <laughs> I've been forcing myself to use it for the last week and a half. I switched away from the iPhone 6 uh, S Plus and been using the 6S with the battery case. Do you, would, would you, I see if I, if you got used to the Plus and if you like the Plus, I can't see how you would, how you could. I don't, like but I wanted to, like, I like to make sure that when I, when I review a product that I go back and actually, because it's, it's right. impossible to review a product properly when you first get it, because right. there's enormous pressure to get that review up and like not pressure from Apple or anybody, or, or, but just it, people don't care anymore after right. a couple of weeks. They won't even bother reading it. So I wanted to take a look at it and I wanted to understand it because if you want a bigger built-in battery, you get the iPhone um, 6S Plus. It's what it's there for. And it's nice because it's elongated and it dissipates heat really well. But there's a whole sort of, and, and people think that Apple wants to make lighter phones. They don't. They want to sorry, they make thinner phones. They want to make lighter phones. They want to make phones that have great radio reception. There's all sorts of trade-offs that you have to do when you have things like batteries and things like radios and phones. Um, so the iPhone 6, I think Apple, again, is very sincere when they say that for some people, it just, it just wasn't enough to do things that were more than an average day. They wanted to give them the option. And if you build that in, you can't take it off. If you have a heavy phone that's twice as thick, you can't pull that off when you don't need it. So you make a case. And then you want the case as one piece and you want a case that doesn't interfere with the radio. Maybe it even makes the radio better because that way the radio doesn't have to ramp up and use even more power when it's got a battery case on because that defeats the purpose of a battery case. And you sort of go through the requirements of it and you end up with a case that doesn't look great, but works really, really well. And then you get this, uh, you know, previously as Apple only cares about design, they don't care about functionality and they make something really functional and immediately get slammed for the design of it, which I think is endlessly interesting. I... I spent, you know, definitely a full week with it. I think even longer. And I was wearing it all the time. And I keep thinking if there's one thing I wish I'd, I wish I'd mentioned in my piece writing about it is maybe a little bit more emphasis on feel, what it feels mm-hmm. like as opposed to what it looks like. Because it definitely looks, and I, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think I held back. I think I called it funny looking, weird looking. It's definitely weird looking. I called it awkward and ugly. Um but it definitely doesn't feel bad. And I, without question, think that it feels better in hand than any of the Mophie cases that I've ever tried because they make the phone feel entirely fat from yes. left to right. They make you stretch your hand over it where this one, the hump sort of falls into your palm and your fingers go on either side. So of I, I would argue, and you know, if somebody, clearly this is the realm of subjectivity. If somebody else would disagree, sure. Yeah. But I feel very confident in arguing that, it, that for me at least, and I think for many others, it feels better than a Mophie style case. Yes. And if somebody else wants to argue that it looks worse to them, I wouldn't disagree. And I, you know, that's subjective, but that, you know, uh, uh, and I think Joanna Stern said it best in her review, all battery charging cases are ugly. They are in one way or another. And Apple's is not an exception. It's a really, it's as to date an unsolved problem to make mm-hmm. a case that is a battery that will, contain a significant charge for the battery that isn't ugly and and thick it's like the headset jack right now a lot of headphones won't fit into it but what do you do you can't make a bigger hole because you destroy the structure of the bottom of the phone there are problems that you just can't solve in a good way yet right i think that this is a very reasonable uh, uh, compromise and I think it's interesting, and I like that Apple tried this. I like that Apple decided it was better to do this imperfections aside rather than not do it at all. 
and apparently they've been working on it for like it it came out late like no one really yeah. expected it to come out in december and they've been working on it for a long time and again like people measure oh it's got like the the mah uh um milliamps are right. lower in this than something else but that's not in context in context right. it, it doesn't waste uh radio which saves a tremendous amount of battery and also with apple because apple is apple they can integrate it to the point where it knows it's connected to a case and not to an outlet so it doesn't turn on all the background processes and start downloading and doing all the networking that it would in another battery case which saves even more power so they sort of optimized for efficiency and not for raw volume of battery yeah and i kind of feel like i, I thought i when i read reviews of it that a lot of them mention and to me this is just it's the wrong way of doing it is you have to understand what it's supposed to be used for it but the yes. test that a lot of people tried to use was all right take an iphone that's took completely down to zero and plug it in and how far do you get and you don't even you know the complaint was it doesn't even get you back a full charge it doesn't get you back to 100 percent, like 80 percent or something that's not the use case of it though the use case of it is not how far does it get you from a completely dead phone it's what is your battery life if you you know if you have what is your battery life like if you keep it in it from the start of the day and the answer is it easily gets you through the whole day of very heavy use that's why it doesn't that's have a switch scenario. on it too, because right. that's not something a human should be should be managing. That's something the software should be managing. Right. Whereas the thing, and like I mentioned, it's the thing I personally prefer than a battery charging case is a little pocket-sized external battery. That's the sort of thing, though, where you do want to know how much you know where the mega amps or whatever amps the M A M H W R, where they. Uh, where that really matters, where let's say if I take one with me and we're at, uh, my family's at Disney World all day, where maybe I'll charge my phone up a little bit and then give it to my wife and let her charge her, her phone up a little bit. And, and maybe and plug in your iPad for some time. In theory, yeah. For yeah. Or, or for one, the, the ones that would charge an iPad, are, I would call them bigger than pocket size. But if you're carrying a bag around, it's easily, you know, it's just, I can certainly see why a lot of people do put them in their bag. Yeah. Um, that's where that matters. For something that's supposed to get you all day battery life, even with heavy use, the amount of you know energy that's in the Apple one is more than enough. the The larger piece that I've seen, and I think you've you, I know you've seen these. There's a bunch of people who've had like it's sort of like this is the year Apple design went to shit, and their arguments are more or less uh, the battery case is ugly, the Apple TV remote is symmetric. So that it's hard to tell which way it's pointed. Yeah, they're incredibly ignorant pieces. Uh, the Apple Pencil charges like a like a big skinny wang hanging out of your iPad Pro, and uh, the MacBook doesn't have enough USB ports. And they lump them all together, and they're like, "There you go, Apple's going to shit." Uh, and I would say that there is some merit to some of these complaints, and there is no merit to some of these complaints, and some of them are. Not really an. Indi uh, they want to lump it all together and say that uh, Apple is losing its way without Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive is, you know, I don't know, you know, not paying attention or something like that. Often an arboretum somewhere in Belgium. Right, uh, and I don't think I think there's some merit to some of the complaints, but I don't think that any of them are worrisome, with the possible existence exception of Apple Music. I think the a lot of them are incredibly lazy and just that they, they didn't try to understand why the design was done the way it was before they criticized it. Some of the points are absolutely valid, but Apple has always had a design that you could criticize every year, you know, pre-Steve Jobs, after the second coming of Steve Jobs, during Tim Cook's reign, there's all there's always been design elements that 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 weren't great. I mean, Mobile yeah. Me again, famously 
under Steve Jobs. The thing that's interesting to me is like, again, do people take the time to understand it? There was criticism that the iPad Pro had this, this empty space for the speakers and they should have been filled with battery. But then you start to think, how heavy would that make the iPad Pro? Yes, and what's, and you are legally not allowed to ship batteries, like lithium-ion batteries of a certain size. So it'd be great to have an iPad Pro that you cannot ship to a customer. And, and all these things, or there was an article about how Apple was posting a job listing for someone to use Avid and, um, and uh, Adobe Premiere. And, it, and there was a whole article on how even Apple doesn't want to use Final Cut anymore. And, and, it, and that was actually for the Beats office in Culver City outside Los Angeles, which is, uh, has only ever been using those products and hasn't been integrated into Apple's Pie. So it, there's just like, those are like sort of lazy articles, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, you could, it, I totally agree with that. And I saw that about the, the, the Final Cut Pro not being listed as a thing for the job, and it was beat. You can argue, though, that it still is damning against Final Cut Pro X that somebody outside Apple wasn't using it because they're, they're were, you know, that they showed, you know, without it, you know, that they should have, that a Final Cut Pro X is what it should be, that they would have been using it. That every customer would use it, although Apple increasingly is not targeting every customer with, with their products. Yeah, I think a discussion of what's gone wrong with Final Cut Pro X is beyond the scope of yeah, this episode. absolutely. But it'd be worth talking about. But, but the I, Apple Music, the control, yeah, there's absolutely things worth criticizing. On the, one of the, the, the one that I find the most frustrating and the one I think is the most clearly talked about is the Apple Pencil, which is that if you, and, and I swear to God, it, the Gizmodo article was more or less... Uh, in terms of what's bad about Apple design and all this stuff in 2015, they were like, Apple Pencil, enough said. And it's just a picture of it charging while it sticks off the table. And the mouse, it, they, the, the charger in the mouse. Oh, yeah, the charger. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and they lump that in. So that's a good one. The app charger, the, the, the charger and the mouse on the bottom. Um, I've, that's an interesting one. That's separate than the pencil, but they, they lump them together. With the pencil, if you write for a site that is ostensibly focused on technology at all, as Gizmodo supposedly is, and the only thing you're going to say about the pencil in your article about its design is this is what it looks like when you're charging it from the iPad and not even mention that it is, I, I really think without any kind of hyperbole, that it's revolutionized stylus input in human-computer interaction. I used Wacom tablets for 10 years, and this is the absolute best stylus I have ever used. Right. There have been ones that work on devices with, um, you know, very low refraction because the the surface is close to the glass, just like all of the various styluses for that work on all other iOS devices mm -hmm. by capacitive. And there have been Wacom things that work with lower latency and stuff but have all these but none of them they, they've, they've reduced all of these trade-offs and it's you and when you talk to people who who do artwork with this sort of stuff that that they're just over the moon about the potential it just of this feels thing. like a pencil it is right. it is the best digital pen instrument i've ever used and right I, again i used this professionally for a decade uh is to not even mention it is it's just sad to me yes. that you're not going to talk about the incredible technology advantages it has just so you can make fun of it what it looks like when it's charging but none of them also none of them mentioned that the pencil ships with a little thing so that you can charge it if you don't want to charge it that way because you think it looks stupid you can charge it just by it's like a a male to female adapter so that you can charge it by plugging in any other lightning cord. Yeah, that's what I use because I, invariably I charge my things at night and then I need to charge both. And once you've plugged in the iPad, you can't plug the pencil into it too. So I just get that little dingus and plug it into the cable next to it. Right. Um, the better question is why did they design it the way they did where the built-in 
charger is a male that that sticks that you would stick into the iPad and have the pencil stick out as opposed to making the built-in one a female so that you could charge it into any cable anywhere and then have an adapter to turn it into a male to do the admittedly looks kind of silly when it stick out sticks out of the thing charging and I've, I don't know anybody who is involved in the development of the pencil. So I say this just as a guess. But I can't help but think that they debated this thoroughly and that the answer is that in a pinch when you're using it and the pencil runs out of battery and all of a sudden you're tap, tap, you realize, oh, this is out of battery. The fact that you don't have to worry if you have an adapter with you, that you can always just plug it into the iPad that you're obviously using right now because I'm we're talking about the scenario of you're in the middle of drawing something and the pencil runs out of battery. The fact that you can just stick it in no matter what, because even if you lose the cap, the pencil has the mail adapter. You stick it in and 15 seconds later, 15 seconds later, you have 30 minutes of battery life on the pencil. Is There's the explanation. Because yeah. otherwise, if they did it the other way, when you run out of power, you might not be within spitting distance of uh, a lightning cable. It's interesting because uh, the assumption when a lot of these articles get written is that Apple is an idiot and they're going to tell you why. Instead of giving Apple the benefit of the doubt, and especially these teams that have done such great work over the years and figuring out why they may have done it the way that they did. And when you look at all the lightning, and it's interesting, all this stuff charges over lightning. If they need data, they go to USB-C or something else. But if it's just charged, they're, all, they're using lightning across the board right now. And they're all innies, not outies, with the exception of the Apple Pencil. So the first question to ask is, why does it do it that way? Not, oh, it's stupid. Apple's doing this. Uh, you know, they've lost everything. It's why would they make this choice? And yeah, you you can, in 15 seconds, get right back to work. And it also, it the Audi is a much smaller package size, and you don't want a little Homer Simpson head on the end of your pencil that you can plug something into. So it's, it's got two tangible benefits to making the product that way. I remember at the actual event itself, uh, maybe you were there with me. I know we were hanging out, but at the event when we were watching the demo and it was close to the end, it was after at the hands-on area, after yep. the event, there's a hands-on area. And um, I got introduced to the guy who's the developer of that, that 3D drawing app. What is that? You Make. You Make, which yeah. is really, I'm going to put that in the show notes. It's a really, really fascinating app. It's like uh, just unbelievable. Like you just draw like on finger screen. painting with industrial design. Yeah, exactly. It's like finger painting combined with like clay modeling to make yes. 3D shapes. And it's like someone at Apple was like, hey, you got to meet this guy. You got to see this app. We've been working with him. We were so impressed. We brought him in early and had him, you know, hook it up to work for the pencil. And he started giving us the demo, but it was at the end of this hands-on thing. And he'd been demoing it nonstop for over an hour and his pencil ran out. And he just goes, oh, hold on. And he, didn't even, he knew he was only going to give us a, a like a you know, three minute demo. So he didn't even charge it in for 15 seconds. It was just, I don't know, five seconds in the port. And then he pulled it back out and it was back to work. Uh, and it, in an area where there weren't, you know, again, there wouldn't have been any lightning cables nearby. It was off in the corner of the hands-on area. It's incredibly convenient. I almost always sketch at night. I used to sketch all day, every day when I was younger. And now I have very little time. So I almost always sketch at night. And several times I go to use the pencil and it's done. I plug it in for 15 seconds. I draw for half an hour, 45 minutes contentedly. And then I just go plug it into the cable and, and I'm fine. Right. It, it definitely looks weird when it's sticking out of the iPad. But you don't have to do it for long. There's absolutely no reason to do it for long. And it's incredibly convenient. So it's convenience over elegance. 
And that's one of the things, like Apple's really good at repercussion modeling. They can they can look at the decision A, decision B, and what is the end result of those decisions. And I can't help but think that if people writing about Apple would spend a few minutes doing that same sort of repercussion modeling, we'd get a much higher level of criticism in, in the Apple community. Uh, the fact that the mouse charges on the bottom, who gives a crap? Uh, that one really gets me. Uh, who gives a crap? I mean, it's... Uh, I, I don't know. It boggles my mind. That well, the thing is, again, ask them, what would you do differently? Well, I'd put it on the back. Well, then you have to cut a huge wedge into right. the front and of the device, it. and your finger is going to hit that every time. you. So what is the repercussions of moving it to another place? Right. I actually don't like the shape of the Magic Mouse, period. Agreed. Uh, but, you know, as the ATB guys have covered in general, it really comes down to how you naturally grip a mouse. And my mouse grip is just not really amenable to this design. But I can see why people who grip it a different way would really, really like this mouse. And if you do, you don't want any kind of flat hump bump thing on the front of it. I mean, it's... And you need a flat plane. That's why the keyboard and the trackpad can charge in the rear because they have a flat plane across the the back. Exactly. And I feel like the fact that they, you know, well, then they could have put the hole in the side. Well, then if you put the hole in the side, it looks like maybe you could use it while it's charging... But it's you know going to be awkward and ungainly, and they don't. It's better to just put it on the bottom and say no, don't use it while it's charging, and it won't take long to charge. And who cares? Just yeah, you plug charge it, in. it for again a few minutes, and you have a day's worth of right. And it looks no worse while it's charging than the old battery operated ones. Meaning, I know they're all batteries, but when you used to have to put uh, AAA batteries in, and if you had no batteries, you had to get and go to the store and buy right. Those and it looks no worse while it's charging than the other one did while you were replacing the batteries. It's, you know, it's, if anything, it looks better because it's not missing a panel. Uh, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. And in, 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 maybe one day Apple will redesign it and it will have a design that is conducive to having a lightning port that works while you're doing it. But that would not happen with this design. And this design is what Apple could ship this year. Exactly. And what they wanted to ship. Yeah. Um, the Apple TV remote being uh, symmetric. I totally agree with that. There's yeah. one where I'm like, I really wonder what the hell they were thinking. And I know that once you start feeling the buttons, you can tell that the volume button is is one big combined capsule shape. And I've gotten, you know, I'm starting to get better at that. The Siri button is dented. But I think you said uh, this, right? It's like the home button, you're, we're just used to having it at the bottom. And we're not used to having a TV set on a home button. And one yeah. has the word menu and the other one has a glyph. Like, like the whole thing is odd. Yeah, I, I, I really wish that, I, I, I don't know, I have some, I really wish that the home button was at the bottom and centered, mm-hmm. just like on an iPhone and... Uh, I really wish it was asymmetric in some way, whether the whole thing is wedge-shaped, sort of like a MacBook Air in profile, uh, or whether it's the fact that it's not rectangular or something. Something so that as soon as you pick it up, it's absolutely positively no thinking involved at all. You know which way it's supposed to go. And that's not even the biggest issue for me because I pick up, I have these other horrible controllers for my TV and Blu-ray player and I they have so many buttons I can't tell what is up and down either. So I, I pick it up and I have to move it around. But once I have it, I can pretty much find things. With this one, because the buttons are symmetrical, even when I'm holding it the right way, I, I have to often double check, is that really the stereo button? Is that really the menu button? And, and the home button at the bottom would in centered would make that a no-brainer. And the, and combine that with the fact that just running your thumb across it to figure out where the buttons are is inherently uh I was gonna say destructive, but that's not quite right. But it inherently it makes action, it makes actions immediately take place with the trackpad. Mm-hmm. Like you can immediately start going fast forward 
or backwards or pause if you click by just trying to figure out is this the touchpad side or the slick bottom side but if you guess wrong and touch the trackpad side something happens to the video stream you're seeing already and i know that the siri button is indented but i have held down that menu button and spoken to it so many times <laughs> it's uh yeah i have too it's uh because you're not supposed to look at it it yeah. doesn't seem it's it's just it should be designed so you don't have to look at it yes. and uh it's not so I would I I will bet that uh, the next time we see a new Apple TV that it'll come with a new remote. Siri remote too. Can't wait. Yeah, and I really wonder how much of it. I know that they must have tested it in like real world testing scenarios, like a dark room while you're on the couch. But I just wonder how much of it is from the fact that maybe it was designed with the lights on and looking at it. And also, I mean, there's so much to get right. Like they spent so much time just mic adjusting micro increments of getting the the swiping gestures right. That you know, they, who knows how much time they spent on on the buttons. Yeah, but there's one where I feel like they definitely could have could have done better. Um, Absolutely. MacBook One with only one port. Here's one where this is maybe the product that I guess it's the one that was introduced earliest in the year, where I still feel like we don't really know what Apple is thinking there. You know, was it an engineering constraint or was it a a statement? You know, like we just don't think you should be plugging things into devices anymore. And we're. I loved Schiller's answer away. on the talk show after WWC, where he said we wanted to make a MacBook that had no ports, but uh, and he didn't say this, but up until about October of this year, you couldn't inductively charge through metal. A bunch of patents and a bunch of technologies came out late in the year that that'll start to allow inductive charging through metal, but you had to charge through a cable. So once you have to charge through a cable, you need one cable. And then if when you have one cable, it might as well be as multi-purpose a cable as possible. So we'll use USB-C that has data and has power and can do all these other things. But at the same time, no one went and took away your MacBook Pro or your MacBook Air. So if you wanted multi-ports, they right. would very kindly walk you over to the table in the Apple Store that has your multi-port wonder machine waiting for you. Yeah, there's one. The complaints about that are more like it's it's not that they took away. Again, they didn't take away any of the products that were already being sold. So whatever you did like, you could still buy. It's more like they didn't build the next generation machine that you wanted. Yes, you which, wanted a Retina MacBook Air and they didn't give you that. Right. And if that's the same sort of thinking that, you know, would have led us to have, you know, floppy drives for another decade or VGA ports for another decade, uh, which, you know, other companies writing, you know, making, you know, Wintel notebooks will meet your needs if that's where you're thinking. But Apple, you know, you're on the wrong side of the fence if, if that's what you want Apple to do. And there were concessions here. I mean, they made the screen so thin that they couldn't fit the Z-Index for a decent web camera in there. I mean, they absolutely had some, some things were just physical constraints on that. And some things were economic constraints because they use technology that, I don't want to say from the future because it sounds corny, but it's a very progressive machine. And things like the force touch trackpad, it's cool, but it also means the, a physical mechanism doesn't have to be under the trackpad anymore. It's just logic. And so they can make that incredibly thin, which again, translates into light, lightness. So I, I could take this MacBook and like an iPad, throw it in the inside pocket of my winter jacket and just I did that the other day and just went to the coffee shop with it. It, it, it has almost no appreciable weight. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I really can't see that as indicative of bad design. I would see this, the MacBook is indicative of significantly different set ordering of priorities. And I felt for like all our friends had these handfuls of adapters on Twitter all the time. And I just really wanted, you know, that that's not the computer for you. It's, yeah. It's you really okay. <laughs> that it's a computer for somebody else. <laughs> you really... <laughs> 
it's okay if you want a MacBook Pro. <laughs> Absolutely. I love the 13-inch MacBook Pro. It's got the Force Touch trackpad too. It is a great machine for anybody who wants to have tons and tons of ports and accessories and things. <laughs> um, I, I think that more or less covers my list. Anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, just the the end of the new, the year stuff, which is Williams, uh, Schiller, and Shiruji's new roles, right. which we kind of mentioned obliquely at the beginning. Yeah. Um, well, we mentioned Williams. Saruji yeah. really, really, I really think, and you know this more than I yeah. do. You're better at sourcing, him, but it's really not a promotion. It's a recognition of where he already, you know, what did you, how did you put it? You do the work first and then you get the promotion. Yeah. And there were so many people who were surprised that he, like, they just assumed he was an SVP already. <laughs> right, right. Like that, that wasn't official. The the part that maybe we don't know the answer to is the Schiller taking over responsible, you know, being named as being responsible for the app store. Yeah. Um, which I don't think is, and again, you know, we're not in a position to know, and the number of people who are is very, very few, and they're not going to talk about it. But whether it's seen as a a, a gentle demotion of it for Eddie Q, I don't think so. But it did require, I mean, technically, it did require his bio to be rewritten such that he's no longer listed as being in charge of the app stores. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. And again, it, it, a lot of this is technical detail. Like the App Store still runs on iTunes. All Those servers are not being physically moved into Phil Schiller's office. And the infrastructure and the and the backend CMS, all the things that run the App Store, that's all still iTunes plumbing. And that's that's not being moved over. What's being moved over is things like store management and editorial, um, which, you know, are just historically has been part of Eddie's work because he was, that's what he ran as part of the music and the, and the movie business and the podcast, which have had editors and store managers since the inception of, of, of that business. Right. And some things like the stuff that's clearly developer relations um, has always been under Schiller, which uh, is which would be a, and, an App Store review. Yes. App Store review, it, like it is kind of crazy. And like you said, I think it's really just the way that this evolved out of going back to 2008, you know, when it was like, well, we've already got the iTunes store. And if we're going to do an app store, we can build it on top of that. And we've already got the credit cards and people already have accounts. And we already know we already have the, the content distribution networks. Uh, we already have all of this. And so you go from there to here and you're left with a scenario where the person who's in charge of developer relations, which was Schiller, wasn't in charge of App Store editorial. Yeah. Because which, he's not in charge of movies editorial or not right, in charge but, of podcast editorial. But it never would have been like that if it had been designed from the ground up as a new thing. If they had, instead of building it on top of... Um, iTunes, the iTunes music, what was once just the iTunes music store, if they hadn't built from what started as that, it never would have been under Eddie Q in the first place, I don't think. Yeah, and it led to uh, a, a lot of issues, for example, um, famously last year, where uh, extensibility came up from um, Craig Federighi's organization, from Software Engineering. Great feature, and it gets announced, and it comes out. And because when new features launch, when a new version of iOS launches, it's a madhouse. There are so many apps to review that they, if they do not crash and they're not detected to have any malware, they just go out. And then anything that has got passed through review is allowed to be featured by editorial. There's just there, There's no... If ands or buts, it's a binary state. This app is approved. We can feature it if we think it's a great app. So they go through and feature all these things. And that, again, is in Eddie's org. And then later when things calm down, 
uh, everybody has time to say, well, this is not exactly the experience that we wanted. We we didn't want anybody to put a calculator in widget space because there's right. so high a RAM constraint. There's such a big potential for crashes. We don't think the average developer has the engineering. Of, like They don't know it's James Thompson who wrote you know the doc or something. It's just the average developer will not be able to make a good app experience here. So we'd rather not open that up as a possibility and well, they I mean, reject it. They can't have a rule that says if you're yes. as good as James Thompson, you can write a calculator for the widget view. And if you're not, you can't. They can't, that's not enforceable. And they don't know because they haven't made thousands of widget apps. They've made one or two internally to test on, and that's not a big sub. So then after a while, they see that this is great. It's got obvious benefits, and they go and rewrite the rule. And that might actually be, it's a horribly ugly process, and it makes Apple look like they don't communicate, and it creates a lot of concern for developers. But it gets, in a matter of two weeks, you have this fundamental change in the App Store that otherwise might take a whole revision of iOS before you get to. Yeah, my hope, though, is that it's also a sign and that not just that it's a more logical place in the org structure for app stores in general to be. But my other sincere hope, though, is that Schiller, because he cares about this stuff, and I know that he does, mm -hmm. that he will make it a high enough priority that it will improve in ways that I think it very clearly needs to improve. Yeah, there's, there's some things that are like uh, anything that's infrastructure based, if people had complaints about the lack of analytics or the lack or, or, or how bad iTunes Connect worked or the lack of resources being given to Mac App Store because they weren't at parity, that's all under Eddie Q because that's his team that, that does all that. But App Review was under Phil Schiller. And if you complained about the rejections or about developer relations, that was all on him. But then there's this middle ground, like who is in charge of upgrades and who is in charge of trials and who that, that was split across several people. Someone had to make the feature. Someone had to agree it was a great... There was just a lot of confusion. Maybe confusion is the wrong word, but there was no clear authority on that. Um, and one of the things that I, I've been asking for for a long time is just a clear VP of App Store. And now it's even better. There's an SVP of App Store. And a lot of the people now are aligned straight under under Phil. And hopefully, there's still going to be a hard time. You get a new engineer. Are you going to put them on Mac App Store when there's like 800 things to be done on the iOS App Store where all your money is? That takes an executive who's going to say, this is important enough that I'm going to expend those resources in a business that doesn't make us as much money. Or they're going to say, uh, I know that we're making a fortune and everyone, you know, Zynga is super happy and Candy Crush is super happy and Cult Clash of Clans is super happy. But we have a legacy. We believe that this stuff is valuable, that quantity is not what matters anymore. Quality is what matters. And we're going to make it our business to make sustainable apps for any developers because we believe that they're crucial. That takes someone, a, a single person like a Phil Schiller to drive through. Yeah. And I really hope that that, uh, I hope that that's a sign of it. And that's how, I, that's how I'm taking that part of the year end uh, uh, executive news. I, I don't know what else to call it. Cause again, it's not really a reshuffling. Maybe the only thing that got shuffled is, is the app store. And even there, it was really more that it got clarified that, okay, this is something that deserves to be under one person, not split across several organizations. And I think internally, like people would argue, and, and I, I don't think it's building a secret say that Eddie and, and Phil have different opinions on things. They're different people. But it was sort of tacitly known that Phil Schiller, if he cared enough about something, he would be the, sort of like the final word on things. And now it's official. The same way Craig Federici has iOS and OS 10 and Angela Aaron's has uh, retail and online. It's, it, Tim Cook has been consistently making, and then, you know, sorry, Johnny Ive has all, you know, ID and HI. Uh, Tim Cook has been making Apple sort of more combined, more more clear in their organization and this feels like something that should have happened a long time ago it's something that needed to happen yeah and i wonder you know whether it's just you know maybe it was it the straw was this planned all along or was like the straw that broke the camel's back the the weird uh mac app store uh 
signing, you know, we switched SSL versions and broke a whole bunch of stuff. And was that the straw that broke the camel's back? Or? I think it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of things. Because that, that, again, when you look at it in isolation, it makes sense. You know, they moved to a new certificate early and people were using such old versions of OpenSSL that it, it didn't work with... Uh, uh, with what is it, Shaw? I'm forgetting yeah. Shaw two or whatever. Uh, SHA two. The details don't matter. The, no, no, absolutely. It's really just was it never should have happened. And well, it's funny. Things... I'm still running into it. I just launched an app that a app that I use very infrequently. I just launched it the other day, and I ran into the you. Have, you know, now you have to sign into the App Store again just to launch this app. I opened my MacBook Pro for the first time in a month and a half, and none of the, I had done, I hadn't rebooted, I hadn't upgraded. All those apps were were, were failing on me. <laughs> the thing that, that to go back to your point previously about none of these things are easy, though. I mean, it's it's it's. I don't want to say it's easy, but we can all say we want upgrades. But at some point, someone has to implement it, or they want trials, and then you have to answer the questions: How long? is a trial. If I download the app but don't try it immediately, can I try it later? If I try it but get distracted, can I go back to it? If I delete it and download it, can I try it again? What app, If I input a bunch of data and the trial runs out, can I extract my data? Because that's my personal information. And it's imp- There's all sorts of questions that have to be answered. But it felt like, like that process hadn't necessarily been been started or at least not fully explored. And hopefully now, when you, you go down the line of those different things that people want from the App Store, at least maybe there's a chance that they'll be reconsidered. Um. Couldn't say it better myself. Uh, anything else? No, I mean, uh, Apple Pay expanded. The other things, I think it's smaller in, in yeah. the, but it's coming to China next year, which is going to be a big deal. But yeah. I, what do you think? All right, last but not least, uh, a year from now, when we're doing this for 2016, is it going to be easier or harder or about the same? Uh, I don't think it's going to get any easier. I think Apple is growing. Um, and it sounds silly to say that the world's biggest company is growing, but it, it, they absolutely are. And we, we're going to get the iPhone 7 next year, and it's going to be a redesign. Uh, the iPad Air 3 is probably in, imminent by now. We're going to have whatever new the next generation. Yeah, the new Apple. There's there's going to be a lot of stuff, and there's, there's going to be service. We didn't even talk about Jeff Williams and his medical. Um, he's, he's, he's running medical for Apple stuff, too, which could turn into something else entirely. Uh, and and who knows what we don't know about Apple because they try out a whole bunch of different things. They they have their eye on a lot of different industries. So I think next year, uh, I don't think we'll get the like, this year. It was unusual in that we got not just two kind of new products, but two whole new app stores, and that just doesn't happen. So I don't think yeah. we'll have the same breadth of stuff next year. But I think we will get the next version of all this stuff. Yeah, my guess is that we'll be we'll spend a lot less time talking about new products that you can actually hold in your hand, and more time talking about new integration software wise like it'll be a little bit more of a nebulous discussion but more along the lines of health kit and stuff like that and integrating the way that that all of these things work together more and offer itunes and there's so much things that they could be working on guest mode for the iphone um if they're going to switch to oled displays and whether they're going to need night mode for that because it's concerned there's so many interesting things coming up yeah well, thank you, Renee. There is also, and if you haven't heard enough about this year in review, there is a uh, giant feature at uh, the iMore uh, year in review where it links back to just about everything you guys did covering all this along the way. I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, what podcasts are you on? What do you want to, people who like your voice, where, do, where can they hear more? I do a podcast with little known Montreal celebrity Guy English called Debug. We just had Nitin Ganatra. Um, 
Don Melton and their box of wine back on, and they talked about management at Apple uh, and retention, which is a follow-up to a show that um, Michael Lopp did with us a, a couple weeks ago on, on similar issues. Uh, and to me, that, that you, you've linked a guy several times on that. And to me, that's one of the most interesting topics about Apple now is how they manage their assets and how they retain their people. Absolutely. A guy said it years ago, just plainly, you know, clearly, that post Steve Jobs, the number one problem facing Apple is retention of talent. And I, as the, you know, I don't think it has become a problem. I don't think it's gone bad, but I think it remains the the single biggest, biggest uh, problem, you know. And one way we're seeing it, and I know that you've heard this, uh, is the way that Project Titan is, you know, the car, apparently, mm -hmm. so we think, is taken in so many uh, talented engineers from across the company that it's created internal conflict of, Come on, you cannot keep taking, you know, people who are working on things that are just trying to improve what's already there are already, you know, there's there's tension in the company of, you know, the car people cannot take take all of our A talent, you know, going forward. Which is interesting so, because most people haven't spoken about the car in terms of a software stack yet. And that's probably one of the most interesting parts about it. Oh, absolutely. But it's also an interesting to think that as Apple expands and does more products, that retention can be a problem, not necessarily for the company, because yeah, let's say you have, an, you have an A-talent engineer and she leaves uh, from working on... Um, uh, working on UIKit and going to UI Watch, kit, for example. Right, or going to the kernel of the operating system yeah. for the car or something like that. Well, Apple hasn't lost any talent, but the the you know, iOS has, <laughs> yep. right? So it's interesting to think of talent retention not necessarily being a company-wide product, but being a, a problem, but a problem for just the existing products as opposed to the new. And it's funny because with Steve Jobs and the iPhone, it was you can only take internal people. We're not going to trust anybody else with this. <laughs> and now with the watch and now with the car, it's like, so you can have some of them, but we're going to fight you on the others. And Right. So I think that's super interesting. I, I also want to thank uh, the four sponsors we had for the show today. The Brower Group, who do uh, the U-Bar uh, and their uh, new Mirage mechanical watches. Hello with their uh, Hello Pillows, hellopillow.com slash talk show. Automatic, the uh, smart dingus for your car. And uh, Harry's, high quality razors, blades, and shaving products. Renee, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Happy New Year. Yeah, may the force be with you.